0: Hello and welcome to ClapperCast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, and Cheese with Jack Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Carson Tamar, long time no scene, Hilary White, hi, and Rory Marsh. Hi there. On today's episode, we're discussing Ethan Hawke's turn as Nikola Tesla, Apple TV Plus and A24's collaboration on documentary Boy State, Peninsula, the highly anticipated sequel to Train to Busan and Ciro Guerra's latest Wait for the Barbarians. Let's start with Michael Almirada's Tesla.
1: Is nature a gigantic cat? And if so, who strokes its back? May I introduce
0: the brilliant Nikola Tesla? The greatest inventor
1: of the age. If you Google Nikola Tesla, you get 34 million results. It's basically just four pictures. Beyond that, things get murky and more imaginative.
2: Thomas Alva Edison. Got a light? Oh, Tesla, didn't see you there before. I now have the pleasure of introducing you to a novel system of energy, alternate currents.
0: The story of the Promethean struggles of Nikola Tesla as he attempts to transcend entrenched technology, including his own previous work, by pioneering a system of wildest energy that would change the world. Hilary, let's start with you this week.
3: Well, I think the first thing I should say is that I am familiar with Almereta's work. It goes back all the way to 2000. The first thing I saw that he did was his Hamlet with Ethan Hawke, which a lot of people hated. It was set in New York, it was contemporary, and Hawke kind of played... Hamlet as like a a millennial slacker a little bit, and everyone didn't like it. It was kind of out there and weird, but I really liked it. And most of the stuff he's done since then has been kind of playful and subversive, particularly um, Cymbeline, which was another Shakespeare adaptation where he changed the setting to uh, contemporary times and the two families were like biker gangs. And then Experimenter, which I think was definitely precursor to this one, which was about the Milgram experiment. So, Tesla ended up being this really fun ride for me and really unexpected and unintentionally and intentionally funny because it's kind of this mix between a biopic and metafiction and then like recreations of what happened. So it's like a playfully educational. And then also there's just stuff thrown into it to make you question what's historically accurate or not whether you have characters roller skating around or someone with an apple laptop showing you google images while um, in period clothing so overall my experience of this was just kind of being thrilled with whatever i was going to see next because you can never predict it and it seemed to it seemed to just be very fun i feel weird saying that like this is a fun movie but it was really fun for me And when it got to this particular scene, which I think was probably a deal breaker for most audiences, was the scene where Tesla starts singing, everyone wants to rule the world. That blew my mind because I thought, first of all, Ethan Hawke can sing. I've heard him sing before. So I'm like, I'm watching an intentionally bad karaoke version from a guy who can sing. A song that's kind of this strange commentary on how this guy is being ruined by, well, his vision is being compromised by capitalism and not really being an economist at one point that's brought up, that he is a visionary and he wants to provide this technology to everybody, but that's not the way America works. So he just ends up at rock bottom and they show that with a karaoke scene, which usually is kind of shown as like a rock bottom scene for some people in uh, or some characters in film and once it got to that point i think it was probably the point where a lot of people who weren't enjoying it were like what what is this i hate it so much and now i hate it even more than ever and um i i, I don't know i just started laughing i was i was this movie brought me a lot of joy and it was totally unexpected and to have a film make me feel joy especially in 2020 with everything that's going on is quite a feat. So I ended up liking it so much more than I thought I would. I had a really good time.
1: To back you up, Hillary, not just a film being a good time, but a biopic like this being such a good time, it's definitely a strange film, and it's gonna be very hit or miss for a lot of audiences. But any time this film made a bold choice and it had this sense of campiness to it and entertainment, I was fully on board, like shockingly, because on paper, it seems like, oh, you're going to have Tesla sing karaoke. It sounds like that's going to be the low part of the film, but it's really entertaining and really engaging, and it's breaking the mold of what traditional biopics are, which is hugely respectable, because normally they just go through the motions, boring, just very lackluster films a lot of the time, other than a few standouts each year. The fact that this movie is willing to take so many risks is something I really appreciate. I think Ethan Hawke is really solid in the film. The issue is it doesn't go the full step. I think this easily could have been like the next cult classic if it just went fully off the rails. Instead, it constantly just brings itself back down to being a standard biopic, which I felt was really disappointing and honestly pretty dull whenever it takes a stand to be something really unique fantastic, enjoyable. Whenever it then decided to slow itself down and be more of a traditional biopic is where it just le- lost me. Um, but overall, I was also pleasantly surprised by this film and how well the more unique aspects of it actually worked for me.
0: I'm glad I'm going third in this conversation because I think, Hillary and, and what you, you've said, and and Kasim, what, you, what you've also said, I, I think I very much take both of those f- feelings. And I think I'm, I'm the probably the... Frankenstein-esque monster that puts them all together because I'd, I'd heard rumblings of someone in this podcast that, that was telling me about this film. And um, the explanation, if you had to explain this to anyone, of what this film inhabits, how it sort of convicts on 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 its ideals and what it wants to say, I think would probably turn 90% of people off. Having watched the film itself, I think it just about gets away with it. To say I was pleasantly surprised with, with, with everything that this film tries to say and how it convicts on its narrative and how it does it on its style, to to, to be here now and, and, and tell everybody that I was pleasantly surprised, I don't think I would have believed, believed myself before I'd seen this film. That's how big of a surprise this, this genuine is for me. There's a lot to take away from this. Um, and there's then, again, there's, there's a few problems I've got. But for the most part, again, I'm so i was so surprised I actually enjoyed this. Um, I think I'd, I'd, on my Twitter, I said that I think this is a very, very ambitious and ballsy film. And I think in the same in the same phrase, I think it's a very bold film with how it's unabashedly proud of of how cheap it is and how it wants to get to its point. It has very similar shades to the production design of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, where you don't need to sort of showcase a Nicholas Tesla character in the same way that Christopher Nolan did with, with the David uh, B- Bowie um, it, character study of it, where you have this very enigmatic and very mysterious character built up with this sort of CGI um, explosion of work. Granted, that's how Nolan did it, and I think Bowie's incredible in that role. Here, it goes down, the, the, like I said, the, the the Coppola aspect of you don't have to... You, you, can, you can essentially hide behind all that shit. Like like with Dracula and Tolerance, Luke Evans, you can hide behind that 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 high-end cgi and you can still miss the boat about the simplistic character and i'm glad that here uh, with the production down by Karl uh, sprague it's really interesting how they sort of dilute that with the most unusually and ridiculously cheap manifestation of settings and how time proceeds and and how on occasion as hillary uh, mentioned there are very small and unsubtle moments of the 21st century hitting the 20th century here with iPhones, iPads, you know, really high-end cigar lighters. It's, it's a very interesting thing uh, to, to behold. Um, and I granted a lot of people, as you say, Kazan, they're gonna walk away from here and probably detest this. Whereas to me, I found it to be incredibly refreshing. I'm gonna to touch upon that just before I end, because I think, I think after a few days of sitting on this, I've really sort of understood why I like this. More so. However, just the film itself, as you said, Hilary, I think Michael R. Mereda does some very interesting takes of his films, where he takes this quintessential notorious stories, and he and he throws it um, around, and and he really does sort of discuss it in his own weird and wacky, wonderful way. And I think Tesla, for the most part, really succeeds on that. It's it's a really interesting biopic, and I think Ethan Hawke plays the, the, you know the, the role relatively well, if not. A little bit one note but again with the reclusive nature of the character i don't think there's a there's a step that hawk could implement that's not really on that page and um, which is a tricky one because i think often than not it, it'll come down to personal preference of whether if that character is interesting or not but regards to to, to, to tesla as a person i don't think there's much that you can add to that already that's been uh has been well documented but uh regardless i think the film surrounds him with some interesting characters i think carl McLachlan I mean, he's turning up um, left, right and centre now after his sort of renaissance with Twin Peaks. Uh, He does a relatively good job here, if not a little undercooked. I think the standout here is Hannah Gross, who's Weedling of Bono's daughter, which uh, sort of greatly interests me about this nepotism debate we're always talking about. But regardless, I think she puts an interesting um, character forward, almost as this sort of uh, third-party-slash-narrator who documents Tesla's life in this sort of really strange... A dynamic relationship both of them have together. It's not. It's it's sort of a really unconventional love story, but it's almost the antithesis of that as well. So it's it's interesting to sort of see and and see how it, how it plays out. And again, for a lot of people, it's going to be hit or miss. Which I, again, everything in this film is hit or miss, which ultimately defines what the feature is um, in in general. So you can't really go wrong. There there is um there are a few issues I've got, and I'll be I'll be very brief with them before I get onto my 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 other comment, but. The one big disappointment I have is that I think, as a biopic, with with every sort of strayed uh, arc it has, it just sort of slightly abruptly ends. And, and it's, it's a shame that there's sort of not the last few years of, of that character's life living alone, bankrupt in New York. I think it would have been very interesting to sort of see a man who would project all of these ideals out into the open and not quite succeed on them. And that was slightly disappointing not to get the overall arc of. Tesla, but granted, um, for an hour and 40 minutes to get the likes of the uh, performance uh, that Amarillo does with the, the actors, I think maybe a two hour film might be slightly uh, too much to, to, to handle but um, there is one major problem with the film and it is, it is this karaoke uh, scene in question which as when Carson first discussed that with me quite a few weeks ago to say that was slightly apprehensive of <laughs> witnessing it might have been an understatement and granted while on paper it might work, and and I think just by listening to Hillary how you explained how that is sort of bottom of the barrel, the quintessential scene in any sort of rundown character is that they go to the bar in a, in a dingy nightclub and they sing a uh, an a cappella. So it, I can get I can get what they were going for, but to say that it was a it was a misfire, I, w- I would I would have to say it is is slightly an understatement. It just ruins the whole flow of the film to a degree where. It almost ruined the whole thing for me. And again, we talk. I'm talking about hit and miss all the time. That is a major thing there. If that scene would have come earlier, I think that you probably would have fifty percent of your audience never getting to the finish line. There's only what five or ten minutes left after the fact, but even then, it was just one one sort of scene where it just poisoned my brain, where I couldn't get. I just couldn't stop thinking about it and just thinking why, why would they have done that? And and, and obviously. Hillary sort of elevated that for me a little bit, so I can appreciate it a little bit more. But still, within the context of its flow and its execution, to say that was jarring, and this, the the pick of the song, to say that this film was unabashedly um, wacky of how it was showcasing its production design, for it then to do something like that, which was so on the nose, I, I did feel like it was it was a slight disservice of what, what it was trying to simplify. But just to get back to uh, to, to 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 end this. I've had, a, I've had a few days to think about why I like this film so much. And it's sort of it's in the same vein as what Hillary said about it. It's been a difficult year for 2020 for a lot of people, regardless of cinema. It's been a difficult year. And I think in a very similar vein to you, Hilary, how you you've seen that and this in a positive light due to that, I think within the context of cinema itself, the amount of stuff I've had to what I've witnessed this year, where it's films that are this incredibly highbrow cinematic intention and they're drastically undercooked and in and, 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 and layman terms, shit compared to this film that had nothing going for it, regardless of its performances that try to reach that height. And I granted it does miss it, but it's so unabashedly, unashamed of what it wants to do. It just wants to throw something out there and make something incredibly, you know, evocative and and visually provocative as well. I thought that it was actually a palate cleanser, which is so weird to think of how uh, <laughs> what's actually in store of this film is in fact something that I would I would I would watch, in uh, in you know letting my hair down. So I think that's why I, I I enjoy it to the degree I do. But just to echo everyone else. This is definitely going to be a Marmite film, but because it's so bold and because it's so ambitious, I can't help but just put that to one side and just appreciate it what it is. And for me, I think it's just this bonkers biopic that, that was generally too good not to see.
2: I'm a big fan of Ethan Hawke, but when I first heard about uh, a biopic of Nikola Tesla starring Ethan Hawke, I was about as excited as when I heard about the. Mary Curie, Rosamund Pike biopic, which apparently isn't out there at all and isn't something I really want to see, to be honest, because I've seen a thousand of them. You know, you've seen the imitation game, you've seen them all pretty much, even though they're about different things. The visual style here I really liked uh, from the marketing. The poster looks great, but they had this kind of theatrical lighting, which i got, which is almost kind of dreamlike, which is something, you know, you don't really see in this kind of film. And the thing that I probably liked the most was the use of background projection here, which is something that I don't really see in a lot of, I don't think I've seen in a film, at least not recently. And while some may argue that it gives it this cheap look, I think it gives it this almost kind of storybook, I'm not going to say like history textbook vibe, but it gives this kind of storybook um, nature to it, which when put hand in hand with Amarada's style narratively, I think really works quite well. Another thing I really liked is uh, how they did the uh, the lightning effects, and it looks kind of almost rotoscoped in, like it's a film from the 50s or something like that. And I thought, yeah, all that visual style worked really well together. And, you know, whilst it's produced on a very low budget, it gave it a really distinct um, feel. And that brings me on to the kind of narrative style, which they use here, which is, you know, breaking the fourth wall, using cutaways, so people using Macs and... Ker, what's his name Carl McLaughlin and Ethan Hawke have an ice cream fight um, which is probably the high point of the film for me but I really liked it and it's probably the only reason that I watched this film because after watching the trailer I came to understand that it was vying to be something more than just a generic biopic and I loved it I loved every time they use these weird kind of out there moments and you know it's not something we haven't seen before we have seen historical biopics where it does a kind of guy Ritchie, and they kind of rewind and go oh it didn't like happen like that happened like this it has happened before but they do it very well here the only thing that i wish had happened as some of you have said i just wish they took it further and they just made it weirder because for what it is i can see what it's trying to achieve and i really like when it really goes balls to the wall and tries to do that but for me it's half that and half generic biopic and if there's one thing that i don't want to see any more of it's generic biopics and that's my main issue. My main issue is when Tesla becomes what someone who doesn't know anything about this film probably thinks the whole film would be. It's just this standard, mass-produced studio biography of a famous figure. Jack, I've got to say I really disagree with you on the uh, on the karaoke scene. It's just it's just that weirdness again that I love. And you know, when Ethan Hawke picks up that microphone and he's got kind of this pink orange lighting behind him and he's singing this Tears for Fears song which, you know, it does coincide with the narrative as well. So, you know, that, that's there for a reason. It was awesome. I mean, he can't sing at all, but I woke up the next morning and re that scene because it's just weird, weirdness. And it just shows a real personality to it. And I can bet you $100 or £100 that you won't see Alan Turing picking up a you know thing and singing, you know, Spanish bombs by The Clash or something like that and The Imitation Game or anything like that. So, you know, it's all it all works quite well for me. And I think that is definitely the kind of hit or miss moment for people. Luckily it does come towards the end. And it's also something I think is gonna be like the most memeable aspect of this film and probably what people on social media are gonna remember it by. And I think that's a real shame because I think people just think of it as this like standing joke, but haven't experienced the whole thing and don't really comprehend what it's trying to achieve. But I really liked it. My main issue is, yeah, as I said, when it becomes a generic biopic, Also how jargon heavy the dialogue was kind of irked me a little bit. They talk a lot about currents and things like that. And while some of it is interesting, sometimes it does feel a bit like a physics class and you're getting a bit left behind. I'm no expert on Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. I haven't been since I did physics in year five, but you know, it, it kind of put me off a little bit. And to say I was almost confused in a stand when it was being a standard biopic is not ideal, but Maybe on rewatch it would make more sense. But it really, that jargon heavy dialogue does kind of dial down and it makes the scenes that aren't being stylized a bit less intriguing. And I think that's where people struggle uh, with the pace because when it's not being stylish and out there, it can sometimes get into this rhythm of just going through the motions, which, you know, with this jargon and dialogue, it doesn't really help speed it along. That being said, Ethan Hawke's awesome. I love Ethan Hawke most things you could say i'm a bit of a fanboy for him but um that's only something that's happened recently And i think it's because of the film choices that he makes i think he really adds a sense of prestige to this film i don't think he's going to be in the running for any oscars or anything like that but i don't think that's what this film is trying to achieve or even set out to even imagine it could achieve but um the fact that he's doing films like this and he's being experimental at this point in his career i think is really good i mean he did like He's appeared in a couple of things that like he did Valerian with Luke Besson, which, you know, isn't a very good film, but I like that he kind of brings energy and life and really kind of brightens up the whole environment. And my favourite part of this film was when he was uh, interacting with Karl McLaughlin's Thomas Edison. I think those two have a really good kind of love to hate each other chemistry. Like it's, it's kind of like a Batman and the Joker vibe. Like they can't live with each other, but they can't live without each other. I know we bring up Joker pretty much every single episode, but uh, there we go. Uh, I thought they were both pretty awesome. They played off each other really well. But the question I wanna ask you guys is, um, do you think more biopics should be done in this kind of more out there way? I mean, I'm predicting the answer would probably be yes, because it seems like a fairly positive reaction to it. But I think, I'm not saying it's a revolutionary moment in this kind of subgenre, but I'm saying but maybe it should inspire people to pull their finger out a bit more and be a bit more creative when it comes to retelling these stories, because the narrative is already there. It takes no work to adapt a famous story into a film because there's so much groundwork already done by, you know, history, but it takes real guts and real imagination to morph it into something like this. It's such a well-worn kind of subgenre that I think it, this is kind of the kick up the arse that it might need. My only issue is that I'm worried people either aren't gonna take it seriously enough or just won't see it. But uh, Tesla, yeah, pretty pretty good film,
1: pretty valiant effort. And I'm, I'm very glad I've seen it. I'll probably watch it again at some point. One thing this one reminds me a lot of is the works of Adam McKay in some ways where it's definitely more goofy than a lot of his films like The Big Short and Vice. I think that this is one of those films where it's like, yes, the subject material on paper seems like it should be taken very seriously. You would say it in a very entertaining style. It's engaging, it's fun. So I do think like, yes, I would like more films like this. I think especially when talking about history, this is a really like, you would say it's not really revolutionary, but like this is a bold new way to look at a historical event and a historical character and try to bring their stories and their like narratives to life in the modern context. So I like, I want to see more of that, but also with the works of Adam McKay, you can see now that there's like dozens of directors just doing shit versions of the same style so yes i want to see more of that but that's also accepting the fact that you're going to get a lot of shit like this that's just bad so it's kind of a dual-edged sword like yes i want to see quality versions of this and go you know versions that go off the wall way more than even tesla does but also you know you're going to get shit versions so it's just a a double-edged sword of what you can expect supporting stuff like this
0: it's well, it's also due to the fact as well is that with biopics are very tricky because you've got to get you've got to get in with the estate. You, you you have to make sure that they're comfortable in signing off performances, themes, the screenplay. It's very difficult to 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 work with a with an estate who isn't in at all comfortable in exploring the darkness of of, of a certain um let's say a high stake person in society. I think. There's been multiple occasions with the likes of, you know, Freddie Mercury's biopic, you know, with Sacha Baron Cohen wanting to sort of go to the Queen estate and say, look, we want to look at this, we want to look at a lot darker, a lot more comedic. And Brian May just said, no, we, we, we Freddie Mercury's not an icon. Let's preserve the icon. And, and I think it's also happened to Azif Kapadi when he made the documentary of Amy, which he'd signed off to make with Amy Wynes' father. And then after the fact, after he'd sort of, come back and showcased what everyone feared that there was a downfall, which was was um, you know, the media and a, and her family um in itself. He he was just appalled by it. And I think it's a difficult thin line. And I think with, with certain people like Tesla, you can get away with it because I don't know how 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 that estate works. But when it when it comes to sort of other other things where you where you want to do this and you want to really make an unconventional biopic. I don't think the estate will, will allow that nine times out of 10. So it is a shame, but it does make you appreciate these things a lot more. And I think the more of the, and, and like you said, Roy, there's going to be a lot of people who look at this and they're going to, you know, it's going to be a highlight of meme culture, I'm sure. And it's going to be laughable in some cases. But I do hope that, you know, even one out of 10 people look at this and understand that this is something that we very, very rarely get and, it, and it's got a mountain to climb already. To, to to get through a saturated market, then often than not, you're just going to get a Clint Eastwood bare bones biopic about um, an American hero, which the estate then again will only sign off on about showing this in a certain light. And then you get like Tesla about uh, Almerada, who just pushes the boundaries and and uh, and just makes something you know less less uh, crazy to, to put it bluntly. Um, but I, I think yeah, it's it's interesting because for the most part, I, re- I really do like this, but it is one of those things where. Um, After watching it, I want to watch something very similar because there's so short, there's such a short lifespan of stuff like this. It's really difficult to sort of go from the next thing or wait in the wings and and, and really uh, look forward to it. I think that another one is Miles Ahead, the Don Chiadle biopic of Miles Davis. I think that's something very similar. And again, look at Terry Gilliam with um, um, Hunter S. Thompson and Fear Little in Las Vegas. It can be done but there are most definitely certain directors who can pull it off. And I'm glad Al has done a really good job with this.
3: I think the thing that's, that may be useful as far as other people trying to, I don't want to say reinvent the biopic, but maybe utilizing more audience participation in a biopic, I think is the direction I could see it going without it creating so much shit, like it was said before and that's what i liked about this one is that it's constantly showing you what happened but it's not what happened so a curious person would end up having to kind of sort out like just on their phone or maybe reading a little bit more about what's true and what's not and educating themselves so there were some parts of this film although it wasn't intentional that i thought like this is a very interesting teaching aid um not that this should be shown to kids in school but like imagine if you're watching a lesson about someone and it's like some things are true some things are not and just to keep your attention engaged and then have you actually discuss it afterwards and actually research it yourself if you're the kind of person who wants to do that I do have some like wrap-up thoughts every listening to all of you guys there's just so much where I'm just like yeah 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 and uh thoughts I have on it too The interesting thing that Rory brought up was the scenes that got bogged down by exposition and kind of scientific jargon and I found that to be not so it wasn't so hard for me because it illustrated a flaw in Tesla's character that there was almost a language barrier he'd have these monologues where like he'd put his hand on someone's shoulder and like look them directly in the eye and say these things like it was a Shakespearean monologue and I would have no idea what he was saying the character would have no idea what he was saying we just know he's doing these revolutionary things, but we actually can't understand it even now. And back then they especially didn't understand them. So I saw that as part of the plot. And um, the one thing that Jack said was that the director had balls. And that was something that I was so tempted to write in my review, but I didn't want to write like this director has balls. Like it doesn't come across as like a, I don't know the kind of language you would see in a review. It's the kind of movie that, um, I mean, I saw it at home and it's 2020 and you don't go to the theater for for very much, but I think it would have been one of those movies, like um, it would have been like my experience with Uncut Gems, like you're sitting with people and then something happens in the scene and you're like grabbing their arm and looking at them like, did that just happen? Did that just happen? And you're just like, have like these shocked expressions on your face. And that would, I kind of wish that I hadn't seen it alone. Although I might've seen with someone who would have been, would have been, upset the whole time like this is why are they like forcing ice cream in each other's faces and stuff and i'd be like this is amazing i mean there's more contemporary stuff out there that is straightforward as well in my review i mentioned the current war if you want to see another take on the whole edison westinghouse tesla feud that's it actually surprised me it was a pretty solid film i thought it was going to be boring so i would mention that up but i think most importantly this particular film i see it as a culmination of almereda's work and he's by no means a household name no one name checks him ever he had this crazy stunt casting in his film like having jim gaffigan playing george westinghouse which is incredible although um i have to say as jim gaffigan gets older he's making these choices to do straight roles or dramatic roles like in american dreamer or they that follow and Light from Light, where he is, he does have potential to be an interesting character actor or even a dramatic actor. And this seemed to be a continuation of that, even though he's just in a few scenes. I know that it was mentioned that Ethan Hawke and Kyle McLachlan have a very interesting chemistry. And in Hamlet in 2000, Hawke played Hamlet and Kyle McLachlan played Claudius, and they were constantly at each other. So they had like a 20 year relationship already having worked together, where they could just come on set and bam, it would automatically be there. There seemed to be a lot of trust among the cast, because a lot of the people who were in this film had been in other Almereta works. And so there seemed to be an understanding too. The scene with the roller skates, I thought, on set, if you came that day, or you had any doubts as an actor, there could have been a lot of fighting, like, I don't understand why we're doing this. This is stupid, and all that sort of stuff. But everyone just did it. And it kind of showed that even, or despite the fact that the movie is so crazy, that there was a trust in the director and his vision. And especially Hawk. Like, it's interesting, Rory likes Ethan Hawke a lot. I've never disliked him. I've never been a solid fan of his. It's interesting, like I think about, I was raised with Hawk in a weird way and I've always enjoyed his work, but his work has gotten so much more deep and interesting and risky as he's gotten older. Um, just in the past couple of years, seeing things like Maudie or In the Valley of Violence, First Reformed, of course, who, which he should have been nominated for, or The Kid, Vincent D'Onofrio's um, film, or Adopt a Highway, which I loved. I love that film where he just plays a homeless guy who finds a baby in a dumpster and has to deal with it. There's certain things he's doing that I have just didn't know he was going to do. And his skill as an actor has become a lot more subtle and effective. And so him as Tesla, although it seems like stunt casting, I mean, he's not even serving or anything like that. He made it work within the framework of that film. Jack mentioned he wants to see something similar. I would really, really recommend seeing Experimenter, which came out in 2014, with, which is about the Milgram experiment. Has a lot of the same cast. Peter Sarsgaard plays Milgram and it has a lot of the rear projection and questioning truth and reality. It breaks the fourth wall. It's a video essay. It has all the same elements. So I would definitely say check that out. I do agree with you guys as well that the ending was abrupt. I actually would have liked to see more if I'm getting older and being in that hotel and being in love with a pigeon and dying, um, because that would have been just as absurd. But we will always have Drunk History Episode 6 on YouTube, which has John C. Riley doing it. And that's almost fits into this film as far as how absurd it is. So I'll probably watch that again. I'm definitely going to watch Tesla again. I can't let it go. I still have it in my library and I'm like, I'm watching this again. And overall I was extremely happy with this. So (laughs) that's where I'm going to leave it.
0: I think you've summed up that perfectly. So I'm not going to, I would, I'm not going to add any more. because I think think that's generally perfect. Um, What I will say is for a little bit of confidence is this film was made on a $5 million budget estimation. Granted, it didn't get a cinema release, so I think the returns of that are going to be... It's probably going to barely break even if that. But if there's, any, if there's ever a sign of possibility that we're going to get more of this, is that $5 million on a film like this, for me personally, I think, with the likes of Amazon Studios and, and Neon and stuff like that, and st- streaming services, I think if they can get the, the cast right again, and it, not even Al just something like this, and look at a very unique person in in history. I think this can be done again and again and again with so much different flavors and themes. You know, you could you could see this throughout the the, the ages of history, being made into a really incredibly uh, interesting piece of work. So so I, again, I, I'm I'm very excited to see this form if it's done again. But uh, like you said, Hilary, if if if, is, if this is his third in in sort of this unofficial saga of looking at moments of history or people of history i I would be very much excited to see if he's if he's going to cap this up with the trilogy and to see who he he could possibly look at after tesla and, and the previous feature maybe richard nixon might be next i don't know but um, well, moving on from the current war to the war of politics let's transition to boys State.
1: I will skip the part where I brag for three minutes about how great and cool I am, seeing as we are all qualified young men of skill and character. People like that stuff. People like that stuff a lot. Some people say they're a sports junkie. I say I'm a politics junkie. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. I'm playing this like a game. I would like very much to win. I love it, boys. I love it. Where are you from?
2: I come from a very modest family. Uh, I'm on the course to be the first one to graduate from high school. I'm a
1: progressive person, and I'm in a room full of mostly conservative people. Our masculinity shall not be infringed. I've never seen so many white people ever. I feel like everybody has a secret underlying
2: need for bipartisanship.
0: In an unusual experiment, a thousand 17-year-old boys from Texas joined together to build a
1: representative government from the ground up. Carson, you're writing the review for Clapper. Uh, take it away. Not to sound like a broken record after recommending the film on the podcast a couple weeks ago, but this is a really fun documentary. 2020 has been like an all time great year for documentaries from Circus of Books, On the Record, Feels Good Man, just incredible documentaries time and time again this year, and Boys State just fits into that list perfectly. It almost plays out as a reality TV. You have 1,100 boys from Texas, just in a space with very little parents, running a government, using social media, uh, fighting basically a popularity contest for um, election. Uh, They have to pass all these bills. You get some boys screwing around, just trying to throw, you know, the the quote unquote country into chaos. Um, It is so enjoyable because the personalities are so great and over the top. As I mentioned, it feels like reality TV a lot of moments with how over the top some of these characters are. And then you go to the uh, private interview where the tell-alls, where they're sitting laying on a couch talking about how they're lying to others for popularity. I mean, it is so, so entertaining. But then also it has this backbone of being this legitimately interesting look at the political system, especially in America, and how it's turned into almost a game. And it finds some poignance with that, which leaves an impact and finds, like, these revelations on the U.S. government through these boys. So it has that layer of depth also. If there is one issue with it, I think the ending is full-on depressing. I know a lot of the people say this movie, oh, it has its moments of sadness, but also its moments of genuine joy and hope. It is a film that gives you hope and then destroys it. And maybe it's just me being from America, uh, dealing with a very, very long four years right now. But it's just, the ending crushes you and it's sad and it makes you lose faith in the government. At least it made me lose faith in the electoral process right now. But other than that ending, completely entertaining, has its highs, has its lows, um, but definitely worth the watch.
3: Well, I agree with, with Carson on one thing. When he just mentioned uh, that it crushes your soul, there's another documentary that immediately came to mind, which is called Eleven Eight Sixteen, which is kind of a fly-on-the-wall look at the election uh, and how people are voting and how people think things are going to go a certain way and they don't. I compared it in my uh, review I wrote in Letterboxd. It's like watching a dog putting its head out the window and enjoying the wind while it's being put it's gonna be driven to the vet to be put down. It's like that bad. <laughs> and this this one didn't, um, it was crushing at the end, but because of the state of politics in the US right now, there was a part of me that wasn't surprised but incredibly disheartened, just because of watching these really young boys realizing what politics are, not only because of the results of the election near the end, but also realizing just how much it's a game and, manipulating and lying to people about certain things they stand for or don't stand for. And then confessing it in these like couch sessions, like Carson said, was kind of eye-opening. What I walked away from the film thinking about the most was what is the point of boy state? Like there's a part of me that's really cynical in a way, like having boy state every year. Is it just a way to indoctrinate kids who are interested in politics with what politics actually is and teaching them how to fight dirty as early as possible as well as like there's there's positive aspects of it well there are some people you see in the documentary that you do admire quite a bit and have incredible resilience there were so many times where i thought things are happening the characters and like i would pass out or start crying or something because the pressure is so intense and you have people attacking you you have crowds attacking you Um, These people have to be incredibly strong and they're all teenagers. So it did make me think about the pressure and then also like the duplicity and dishonesty that has to go into politics. And the other thing it made me think about a lot is that there just needs to be more diversity in politics. There isn't any exploration of girl state, which I heard in the beginning was a thing, or maybe that was a joke. I'm not sure. And of course, This particular year that they captured, there is probably more diversity than there ever was, but there isn't very much. So that was kind of illuminating. I think Renee at one point says, I've never been around so many white people. And you feel it. And it's Texas. It's a particular kind of white person that is incredibly uncomfortable to be around in this country. So needless to say, he really held it together considering what happened in this in this documentary
2: i think i can attest to the quality of this documentary simply by saying at least from my personal point of view that i don't like political films or films that kind of are actively trying to well it depends on you know you're thinking of something like five bloods like obviously that has political agenda and that's conveyed very well but films that are overtly about the political system and kind of voting and elections and everything like that i tend to avoid because it's just not an area that interests me particularly much but i thought this was really great i was i was planning on avoiding it and just letting you guys talk about it but i i watched the first 10 minutes and got really sucked in it was pretty fantastic the main draw for this to me aside from you know the whole boy state program is a really interesting reflection on the american government as a whole as in it's kind of in a sense, the whole idea of the program is to try and anticipate the future of American politics and politicians. And my favorite thing about this documentary was just the kind of array of characters on show here. And it's really interesting to see the differences in these people. Like there's there's one character who's kind of from quite a well-to-do family, uh, who I believe is on the nationalist side. And he openly explains how when running for this kind of mock governor post he's lying against what his true beliefs are and only telling the people what they want to hear in order to get elected despite it conflicting with his personal interests and things like that and it makes you wonder how much of this is actually going on in the real life government because these are people who aspire to have careers within that and it also really exposes the toxicity of this herd mentality i mean there's uh, what, what was the, the, the nationalist chair's name? I can't remember now. But uh, th- there's this, one of the boys gets elected to kind of help run the Nationalist Party and he's just kind of booed and they try to impeach him within like his first day in office. And you've realised just how nasty and tribal this can be. I mean, while they are 17-year-old boys, these this small collection of boys is a reflection of the kind of state and the government as a whole, and it does really worry you how much of this is true in the real government, and this is kind of an emulation of that, but it also emphasizes the wholesome nature of these communities, how people can come together and if they're fighting for what they really believe in, make some genuine change and garner support and there's kind of a protagonist to this who I won't explain who he is, and I think he directly ties in with what Carson was saying about how depressing the ending is but I found it kind of more emotionally stirring than depressing because it has, it's, it's kind of double-edged because it has this whole political element to it, but it's also a story of kind of personal success and feeling proud of yourself and kind of rising above the challenges, not only of the boys' state, but of your kind of cultural heritage and things like that. And I think it does that really well as a kind of double play there. And something, yeah, the the strategic nature of politics tied in with these personal stories and seeing how it all comes together at the end in this kind of emotional sting to this otherwise overtly political film about this kind of strange experiment they have going on in Texas was really compelling. And for someone who doesn't like political filmmaking at all, this is one of the better films that I've seen
0: this year. So definitely go and check it out. Just to follow ironically off off from Rory, I think it's it's probably good to to mention that me and Rory are both British. Um, while, while Rory, as I just mentioned, is not really into the political sphere of films, for me, it, it's something that really engages me on, on a level, not to the level that engages Ben in this film, but I do find the discourse very, very interesting as a pastime. And when a film has that uh, a theme involved in it, such like a biopic, like I said, all the stones, Nixon's one thing that interests me, you know, Snowden, stuff like that will we'll always have, sort of, I'll always grab it too, but but a documentary on this sort of thing is is so my shit. It's unbelievable. So going into this and and, and not hearing much about it, except for Carson's thoughts on it and um, last week's recommendations, I would I would say I was, I was really looking forward to this. And and looking from an as an outsider in, I, I see this very similar how how both you do Hillary and how Carson does is that. I see this as one of the most heartbreaking assessments of, of, of what America is like at the moment. And, but I also see, uh, you know, I also do see the side of hope to it, but if I can come onto that in a minute, I've just, I've, i just, there's a few things here that I think, regardless of the actual film itself, it's plot, sorry, it's plot, it, 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 its, it's themes and it's, and it's how it conveys, you know, politics in general. I just have to mention the filmmaking because the cinematography here is so fluid and seamless. It's almost like, like you're watching um, a narrative feature. It, it, was, it was beyond uh, like just, well, I'm gonna say satisfying, but it, it, it's more than that. It's, it's so well executed, it's unbelievable to watch. It, it just feels like fly on the wall doesn't quite cut it. It's almost like you're just flowing through this. It's, it's so effortlessly edited as well. It's, it's something really stunning to behold. It feels intimate, but the camera never gets in the way. It never feels like, oh, we're there. We, we can we can tell we're there we're, we're with them through um, the magic of a camera lens. It felt like we were there on the ground with them. It, it was a it was a very strange documentary to sort of behold in that way because throughout you 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 do really want to sort of chime in because there's certain things that people say in this at the age of seventeen where they're trying to pass laws and then there's there's, there's a few people. who are are voicing these opinions and how the film opens up with quite a few historical figures who've gone on to be in the white house, who have, who have been part of this. That is a very frightening thing to behold. And it's also quite chilling to know that at 17 to 35, those people are not changing their opinions. They're not evolving with the time. So there's a lot to, like I said, there's so much to take away from here, but this is probably a documentary that probably deserves an hour and, a, hour and a half in itself to really dive deep and investigate. There's so much here, so I'll, I'll be very brief because I know there's probably a, a larger topic we want to talk about. I mean, as as I said, the filmmaking, the direction is is magnificent. But I, I must admit, after this finished, and I, I, caught, I get called cynical every fucking week on this podcast, but I'm going to go probably the cynical I've been. This, this, this was shot in 2018, so it's two years after the, the issue uh, with, with Bernie Sanders at the DNC, with, with Hillary, and, and, and then Trump, um, unfortunately, winning that election. Two years on from that, and we're two years on from the documentary, and you look at it as four years, and it's so difficult to watch and see that nothing has changed. That rhetoric of winning at all costs, regardless of policies, but demeaning character lives so long and lives so truthful that 17 year old boys within a week of knowing each other will go to that length. And I just found it maybe, maybe again, that's my cynical take on, 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 the worldview. And I, I, but I generally, as Carson said, how he, how he, he found it really difficult to watch it then it was, it was heartbreaking. I think that moment just eclipsed everything I, this is such a difficult film to witness that when you get to that moment and you get to that ending, and you 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 hear about that that specific kid's political beliefs, which I don't think anyone could whether 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 head on the, the 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 shoulders could arguably disagree with, that it ended in the exact same way as his hero did in in twenty sixteen, and, and and to come away from that and have that phone call he has with his with his with his mother. I thought was genuinely so so beautiful but it's just that echo of politics has has changed and it does beg the question of is this moment set up to teach these boys to to understand um, the division that they're causing or is it to really set them in their in the sights and see that this can be done quite easily if you've got if you know you've got it if you know you've got it you can exploit it and I think it's a very dangerous thing to behold uh, this sort of this sort of thing and it's interesting to get uh, like I said, an and IOT account of it, but i I'm I'm I just feel it's such an oxymoronic relationship with it because on one hand I think it's so well done, but the actual theme of the film is so am I on disgusting to sort of witness and how heartbreaking it is. I think unfortunately that sort of takes precedent for me, which is slightly unfortunate that I will probably never watch this again purely because I don't want to have to witness that it just i just felt that that specifically that phone call was gut wrenching and and we spoke about earlier about you know 2020 in a whole and how we are seeing this it's a difficult year to say that encapsulates the, the the thought and feeling of so many americans at that age from that background i it, it, it it's it's a very poignant theme to behold and i just i i just i feel that the, the the whole theme that encapsulates this this documentary, for good or for bad, is that naive, ignorant rhetoric is always the thing that's going to survive. And that if you want to shit on someone else because of their beliefs and not have an honest discourse, I mean, they want to impeach Rene because he because he doesn't want to manifest these themes or these so these political agendas in his manifest. And you're hearing this this 17 year old. Children essentially shout impeach, impeach, and then we get on the topic of going on social media and, and they're taking up out there with racist imagery. And you, we're seeing what happens on Twitter now with the likes of Donald Trump and you know, conservative uh, pundits making unabashedly and unapologetic comments about people of race. I mean, it's if it's not telling and the shit the society of, of the world is in, I, I don't think. We can have a more honest reflection, a more generally terrifying reflection of, of mankind in this moment in time. And this is two years gone. So God forbid what
1: these people are like now. One thing I think that could help the film in the future is actually if the filmmakers come back to the idea, because this is like, let's be clear, we're talking about this as a reflection of American politics. And sure, we definitely see that in the wider scale. But Texas is a very conservative state. Like uh, Hillary mentioned, there's girls' state. I I don't know anything about this program. I've never heard of it outside this documentary, but I believe they have it in most states. I would love to see like sequels to this documentary, looking at other states and different mentalities and maybe girls' state. Because I think there is a larger conversation here and I think that if we had that diversity to where we could compare and contrast it wouldn't feel so just utterly depressing to the point where like you said Jack I don't know if I could rewatch this film because like the fun that I was initially experiencing with it once you know the ending it's just gone because it's just such a it it f- transported me back to 2016, literally when Trump won and just like the exact feeling of just like everything seems to be going super in one direction and then you just get gutted and it just falls apart. Like it felt very similar to that. And once you know that ending, the fun, you know, I mentioned it's like reality TV. And in that sense, the fun is kind of trivial after you know like the truth of it. And after you have the real stakes, it becomes the entertainment that really engaged you f- at first feels trivial to laugh oh these characters you know they're oh, they're lying and whatever considering you can so perfectly add that to what's happening in real life politics mm-hmm. i think that though if this film had more of a nuance in like future uh you know i wouldn't say a mini series because the formula could get dull very quickly but if you had sequels that maybe had a more positive ending or not even just a more positive ending but just a different reflection on the political state in america whether you know whatever demographic change you want to look at. I think that could help the overall conversation to where this is just not so depressing as like the definitive look at American politics in this sense.
3: I agree with Carson. And actually, that's a very hopeful note to take from this conversation is that it does happen in other places. Like Carson, I was totally in the dark of people from United States. I mean, never had heard about this. Um, it would probably be different if it was in different states because like I mentioned like Texas is a very specific place I mean I was raised in Utah like I would know what I know what boy state would have been like in Utah it would have been a lot nicer but it would have had the same results you know what I mean so I do like that idea at the same time, there is something about the film that I did question, and it's not so much a criticism, it's more just an observation, and it was in the editing. There was some times where I wasn't quite sure if the footage was manipulated a little bit, especially because it went out of its way, like it did frame like who to root for in the film, and then who are, who are the characters, well not characters, who are the subjects who are problematic in this documentary. It becomes very quickly apparent who the filmmakers are siding with. And there was some times where there were shots of that particular the particular guy who was running against Steve. And I can't remember his name, the Ben Shapiro mess- messianic fear- figure that everyone loved so much. Um, they <laughs> yeah. did. That particular guy, there was a shot of him particularly when um, his Second in command, I can't remember his name right now, who just kind of like overtakes everything and just starts like yelling. He's using a microphone, um, accusing Renee of doing certain things. And you see like the shot of him and his lips are twitching. It's kind of like this evil, like he's enjoying it or something. And I thought, was that footage taken while this was happening or was that edited in later? So I think there might have been tiny pieces that kind of sensationalized what, hap- what happened, but there's no proof one way or the other. As far, far as the ending, I I feel so horrible saying this, but I saw it coming a mile away. I I just knew, especially because it's Texas. I was like, there's there's certain things they were leaving out and weren't showing. I felt like they're setting us up so we fall off a cliff. And when it was announced that it didn't go the way we thought it was going to go, I mean, I felt horrible. But at the same time, I once again I don't like it, but it didn't surprise me at all. And I think that's in itself is really sad because it shouldn't have gone that
0: way. Just, just to add a, a few more things as well. we talk about, it's interesting how Hillary talks about the, the you know, the filmmakers and, and how it sort of already has this predetermined outcome of who to root for. There are scenes in, in, in this documentary where, again, to, 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 to the normal eye, I don't think it'd be a big issue, but for me, just for me personally, I, I could sort of, begin to pick it up towards the end is how the camera then frames itself in multiple different angles almost seamlessly during these speeches, which felt on reflection, not, not jarring, but quite unorganic of how, how they were approached. It did feel like it was slightly rehearsed. And again, if how, if how Hillary's picking up on, um, on what she's saying and, and my thoughts on this, it does beg the question then to sort of dig a little bit deeper into just a maybe look at, look at the uh, the filmmakers behind this, but I, I will just say about the filmmakers in general, there's a lot of subtlety these two um, documentarians find here to the point where it's only small moments, but there is are so, sh- I, I don't want to say shocking, but eye-opening is probably the account. The fact that when they interview Rob, Rob states quite literally on camera, and, and he knows this is going to be seen by loads of people, he tells the viewer um, a certain political um, agenda that he has, that he goes against what beforehand when he's trying to get, uh, what, six, 600, 700 boys on, on his side to vote for him for governor. And it's interesting how they relax these subjects in this chair and then they talk freely and quite candidly because Rob never understands. that is, That's politics, I guess. And it's, it's not very clear if these boys know actually what they're trying to talk about, which is fact. Or if they're actually looking at the people who are in power and taking that on it's almost a, a feeder a mentality of, well, that's who I should be supporting. That's what they say. So that's what I need to believe in. And there's quite a few comments of that throughout, especially on the bus, where you see Stephen in his seat, acknowledges everybody, shakes his hand. His mum and dad are not there like everyone else is. You can tell straight away that he that he he's a little bit different from everyone else. The colour of his skin is different to a lot of other people. Um, and how he's just sat there and, and he's hearing in the background all these people talking about Trump and how if the person's in charge, I should, I should support the person in charge. which that meant I'm not going to move on, but that mentality is fucking ridiculous if you think about it with a bare bones. In any other environment, that's so stupid to get behind. But regardless, we're just moving on. Not only does it how it capture Rob quite a lot, but calling Stephen, Stephen Garcia, in front of 600, 600 people, his, his potential delegates, I thought was very interesting because the moment before that, he actually talks from one-on-one and says, look, I don't want to put you down. You're going to talk about this, this and that. And then he cuts him up again by that speech. So it's just very interesting how he finds that, especially during the impeachment of Rene, when 12 people stand up to impeach him. And Rene quite wonderfully says, well, now you can go outside, you can make a basketball team. You know, it's, it's that really nice humour where, you know, Fuck those people, but but kill them with, with kindness and softness rather than um you know returning the 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 same mentality that they, they they put on you. But the fact that Rob sits there and says, and I'm not shitting on the guy, I don't get me wrong, he's 17 or he would have been 17, when he was 18 during it, one of his birthdays during it. He says it's it's not right what they're doing, but I don't have to clap, I don't have to cheer and clap for him either. And it was just heartbreaking to see that a kid of that that quality, that ilk, who, who would agree with Rene on quite a few things. It's quite transparent. Who is the same age. The only two things about them two is the, the colour of his skin. Could not just, just say something in that moment because it would go against his agenda of being governor. So there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of subtlety that that, that there's very small moments that manifest themselves to be these huge things. The fact that Eddie and Ben play Rene during, during those meetings is also for 17-year-olds is quite frightening. And it's almost like, you know, Lord of the Flies mentality. So I remember, so I can't remember if it was a hot take, but people were talking about Hereditary on, on Twitter and how it was the scariest film of the, the, this this last decade. And I'm, I'm sorry to say, but if, if anybody doesn't see this and see how much of a fucking horror film this is, this should be on a top 10 list of anybody going to watch this <laughs> because it's just, even as a Brit and I'm, I, the, 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 I, I, I'm hoping we'll be moving to the U S next year and to see people who are five years younger than me, who are far more educated than I ever will be, who, who, who will have more chances than I ever will be at the age of 17 and not understand, you know, p- opinion and people. Over, over policy. Uh, I just think that is a scary world to, to go forward in. I, I really do.
2: Yeah, this this Rob character you're talking about is, is a fascinating guy and he was the one who I was mentioning earlier when he was talking about the guy who was kind of changing his beliefs to get votes. And another thing I found really interesting in the way that it establishes these characters is very near the beginning, they're given kind of petition sheets and each person who wants to apply for governor has to get 30 signatures. And it has a lot to say about the kind of characters we have in politics today in the way that certain people go about gaining these signatures. So you've got this Rob character who's willing to change his political beliefs just to get votes. And his way of doing it is being kind of the friendly guy. And he goes up to everyone and acts really chummy with people and kind of I'm not going to say bullies them, but kind of pressures them into signing this thing and getting him to be able to apply for governor whereas steve this this kind of character who becomes the protagonist goes around person by person he says i don't want to i don't want you just to vote for me out of the blue i to. i want to understand if you can ask me any question and i'll respond to you and if you agree with my policy then you can sign my petition and help me get elected as governor and i think the diff The difference between those two is highlighted very well in this documentary, and that has a lot to say about contemporary politics as well and, and the different personalities and how the public opinion can be swayed very easily and very in lots of different ways. Something I was a bit confused about, and this might be a very stupid question, but that how the documentarians chose which people to document is an interesting feature i'm not really sure how it worked because there's a thousand boys 1100 boys who go to this boys day event and they choose to focus very closely on three or four of them from the application process up until the conclusion and the people who they choose to document end up becoming the most important people in this whole mock election thing i'm not really sure how they manage that unless it was just pure dumb luck or they chose the candidates very very wisely and we very very lucky with it but that's something that i find Questionable about the legitimacy of it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to say it's staged or anything like that because it's a great documentary. And I think it's, you know, well intentioned and it's it's very well made and you know it's very entertaining. I don't want to try and discredit it at all, but I just find that coincidence or that stroke of luck very interesting as to how they did that. Maybe there's a kind of documentarian reason why that happened and why that works so well. But it, I did find it intriguing
0: how they managed that. I mean, Hillary did bring this up. I think that that was that was one of Hillary's points, um, and I think I, I sort of I agree with that as well. It's slightly suspect. However, from my own personal viewing of this film, I felt there was only two people they were actually following, which was Stephen and Ben. Now, I think they were only following them two specifically because of their their their, their quite interesting lives. How um, they Ben is a, is a is a double amputee. Um, a, a, a very hardcore conservative who, who, who treats politics almost like a junker, and I think put, putting him, him in that that environment is interesting because of his disability, but also because his disability should not hinder him within that uh, that that circle. And I think it's interesting to see someone who is who is disabled within that political sphere, and to see if that does dictate. Uh, whether an able-bodied person against someone who is disabled uh, will get the vote. So I thought that was an interesting thing to do. So I I think they were always going to follow him regardless. And Stephen, there's no one like Stephen within that document. I know know that Hillary said about diversity. There's a a handful of people of colour in this documentary, Um, but the story of Stephen being a Bernie Sanders supporter, (laughs) I think he may have been one out of uh, 1,699 people. So I think... He Undoubtedly, he's, he, he, he sticks out. However, just to add to your roar, what if the point is for them to never get as further as they did? So it does beg the question of, yeah, there's a lot riding on them too. However, I think regardless, there's a lot in this, this documentary to take. I mean, Eddie's not a big part before um, his insertion into, into Ben's manifesto. So maybe he just came in like that. So maybe, maybe it was organic in that way.
1: So I had my conspiracy hat on and questioned the authenticity of some of this documentary, specifically in the tell-alls. We've mentioned how there's multiple characters changing their political beliefs based on just what people want to hear. I'll quickly say, you cannot discount the idea that these cameras affected what these kids say. No one wants to come off as a bad guy. No one wants to come off and just openly say like, yeah, oh no, I'm I'm fighting for anti-abortion, pro-gun. Like, you know, I think they're very well aware that this is gonna be a documentary that's coming out. So I think that there's some of those characters who I started to question are they really changing their beliefs or are they just also trying to like backtrack a bit in these private interviews and say, Oh no, no. Like I'm more in the middle. I'm not going to say my specific views, but you know, I'm not extreme in either direction. I'm just kind of playing it up. That was one thing I kept, I'm not saying that's what's happening, you know, not like, Oh boy States, you know, fucking lying about everything. But that was one thing I kept questioning, like what role does just the fact that there's this camera crew and this is being filmed for a documentary affect not just the tell-alls, but every single speech and aspect of this film? Because you must think, especially for seventeen-year-old boys, that must be—they're very well aware of this, and they're definitely changing how they act in certain ways and how they talk, and what you know, how they're trying to present themselves in certain ways.
3: Uh, one thing I can I can add to that. A possibility I started entertaining while watching this was that maybe the filmmakers set out filming a lot more subjects and there's just a lot on the cutting room floor. I think one person mentioned in the letterbox reviews that he was in the film. He's only in it for like a second and I'm not saying he was a subject, but it did give me kind of a glimpse into the possibility that maybe there was a, a many more subjects, a lot more interviews. And then as in the editing room, this is what we ended up with or as the production kept going it eventually funneled down like here's the two people we're going to focus on because this is where the story is
0: I, I'm, I'm as anyone might tell i'm, I'm not american I'm not american citizen I, i've got no sort of ideal in american politics i will say that and again I, I i know i've mentioned this and i just i just want to bring it up again because I, I can't really get over how powerful it is but that ending speech by stephen in in the face of what he has to deal with and and these emotions coaster the fact that he speaks to his mother in Spanish, I thought was probably one of the most touching moments in the film throughout. He, he's not, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he, he's, he hides the fact, but he's very shy that his mother an, was an undocumented immigrant to this country. And he, he makes a really compelling conversation about that. If, if, if immigrants got to this country, like his mother did, and I've ended up like I, like I am, that, that quite clearly we're not bad people. And I, and I think the fact that he speaks Spanish on the phone, in the, in the midst of defeat, in the midst of like, he's crying because he lost, but I think he's crying because he's so proud of everything. But the fact, fucking, hell, it's quite difficult to speak about it as it is, but, but the fact that when his contemporaries come up to him, his, and he's his peers, and you have that young kid who's followed him around everywhere. Um, actually, I don't think he's, well, actually, I'll go back to that. You know, Stephen, when he gets that final signature and you don't know it, and he, end, he ends that interview and he's like, he just, you, the, the, <laughs> the film conveys like he's not got that signature and you're just waiting for him to go on the, the basketball court and he's, and he's going out to his, to his friends. And the, that's why I'm talking about subtlety and, and why I think Stephen's probably the most organic character there. And I don't think he ever plays up to the camera is the fact that he allows his friends to finish the conversation about the tactics of basketball to then just nonchalantly say, "I got my, I got my one signature," and his friend next to him says, "Oh, excellent!" And they they hug and they embrace, and it cuts away, and you get to the to the real heart of it. In the end, it's the same kid who comes up to him who's in tears and says that you're the most honest thing, you're the most honest person here, and it, like he, it was just so difficult to watch. In the fact that that five minutes was just heartbreaking on so many different layers, it was so layered to perfection, and then you know. Even though I think Stephen, in the face of it, thinks he's lost. And I'm not trying to shade anyone and shit on anyone here, but there's a big difference between jumping out of a plane and then speaking and opening up at the Democratic National Convention. That's all I will say on that.
3: Um, I have a thought to add to that. I think one of the biggest contrasts and interesting things of the film was the fact that Stephen. What had a Mexican heritage? I, I don't think he talks about his dad, but his mother is is from Mexico. And I found it very interesting that Texas used to be Mexico until our country took that land away from them. so he it's very interesting that he as a person, is the outsider in a place where it actually was his heritage in a way. And the fact that his tactics as a politician, however, naive they might appear to certain people, is democracy in the way it works. It was mentioned before that his campaign was to walk up to people and talk to them about what they wanted and asking him questions. That to me is the root of democracy, or at least in my mind, which might also be very naive, how democracy should work. You get people to represent you and you talk to them about the particular issues that are concerning you, and that person brings that to the stage and opens it up to discussion. That's what Stephen was doing, so I find it very interesting that him being the outlier and also having Mexican heritage and possibly you know a background of his mother being an undocumented immigrant, speaking two languages, looking different from everybody, the fact that he got it more than most of the crowd around him who's supposedly American was very striking.
0: Just just to add before we move on, and I, I again I'm dis- I can't I disagree with anything you said there, Hilary. And I don't really, it's, this is not a gripe or anything like that. It's just something I would like to have seen more, more of. I feel that as a viewer and, and, and seeing these, these kids and, and seeing how they adapt and how they value people over a signature and nothing else, and to see how quickly they will stab each other in the back, knowing the full well that they can get a step further up that ladder, I would have liked to have seen those four debates within the film a little bit more. And I would like to have seen René Edé Ben and Stephen in a room together. i not, and I, I don't mean literal. I just mean I would like to have seen them all in a in a, in a in a in a discussion about what had gone on. And I think what Carson said about seeing more of this in in a year's time or four years' time, I would like to. Like, I'm not trying to compare it, but the, um, you know that there was the that dating show on Netflix where people randomly date each other through a, you know, and then they, they would like marry. Is it like something fiancé? I don't know. I would like to see Apple TV do a, do a like 45-minute follow-up of getting these kids in a room, which eventually will probably be three years later, or hopefully be getting them in the room before November or after November this year and discussing how they've evolved and how they see the political spectrum with their voices now growing. Because I think Stevens would be, very, would be a lot more interesting to, to, to witness I think Ben's would be. It would be interesting to see how Eddie would have have, uh, uh, gone further being this Ben shapiro light operator. But I think it'd also be very interesting to see how Rene would have got on as well. So yeah, I I would definitely... You know, I I don't think, as much as you might disagree, Carson, I don't think a miniseries would be out of the question for me. I'd definitely like to see um, the girls stay. I wonder how that would have... how, How that would have been any different. However, to see a mixed gender version of this fascinates me beyond belief because 1700 boys and having political discourse frightens me to death and i can't imagine what it would be like with a mixed gender and just seeing that even that we can't even get along and the fact that you would you would still have this horrible discourse regardless of gender which is probably right i think i don't i don't know how how it would go but no, I'm definitely game to to see a round two here. Um, I think they probably missed the boat with it now. Anyway, if this is shot in 2018, which again would probably allude to what Hillary was on about with all this footage, and then, then they found two people or two or four people who have then gone to do something else. I think that may be a factor of why this has been so long in the making. But um, hopefully, we'll get something sooner rather than later to to really see where these four are because, regardless of their political beliefs, it is interesting to see how. Confident and, 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 and you know, educated, these four people are from re- retrospective backgrounds trying to fight their what they believe is their cause for good or for bad, depending on what on, on your political beliefs. So, again, j- just to get my final thoughts, and I think it's a very, very interesting documentary, very poignant, very compelling. Maybe the best documentary I've seen all year, but I think I'd probably have to go to the wire on it but regardless I'm I think this is an experience that is very very eye-opening to say to say the least let's move next to waiting for the barbarians
3: are you familiar with these parts of the frontier
2: not with this part not yet
3: There is an episode of Hysteria about the Barbarians. I have orders to obey. I'm speaking of particular situations. Situations where I am probing for the truth. Since all is not well here, I expect further
2: measures will be taken.
1: Colonel Jaws are conducting operations to correct
3: the situation that you've allowed to develop. What did they do to you? Do you want me to take you back to your family? The barbarians whom you are chasing. This is their land. They know every inch of it. You do not. Did you really say that there will be... At an
0: isolated frontier outpost, a colonial magistrate suffers a crisis of conscience when an army colonel arrives looking to interrogate the locals about an impending uprising using cruel tactics that horrify the magistrate. Rory, take it away.
2: Sierra Gare is a, a director who I've been following for a couple of years now. I think he's a real auteur. I don't want to get into all the allegations that have been made against him and stuff recently. But um, I think as far as kind of contemporary auto directors go, I think he's one of the more unsung heroes of that title, if you will. Uh, he specializes in these kind of apocalyptic narratives set in kind of historical period in these marginalised communities, Uh, like his first film, which I still think is, not his first film, but uh, the film I still think is his best is this one called Embrace the Serpent, which is about two different time periods in the Amazon and the eventual extinction of this Amazonian tribe. Uh, But he also did one called Birds of Passage, which is co-directed and it's about the kind of infiltration of the Colombian drug cartels within the, what's the word, native tribes. Um, And how that kind of corrupts them and things like that. So it's a very interesting uh, Career he's had and it's it's something that appeals to me from his films is definitely one of the main appeals is his exploration of these Communities and these time periods and these geographical locations that we don't really see on screen never in mainstream media and rarely in kind of our house films so it's fascinating to see his take on all these different areas, but this one when it when it came out, normally Sierra Guerra films get a lot of thoroughfare because they're normally quite culturally relevant and critically acclaimed. This one didn't really get that. And my main my main explanation for that, which is I wrote in my letterbox review, is that it's just it's just not very good. At least in my opinion. The highlight here is definitely performances. Johnny Depp, I think, is this kind of puppet master colonel who comes over completely unaware of the customs of the local people and kind of incites havoc within this uh, outpost and the surrounding indigenous communities. Uh, Mark Rylance is the kind of protagonist and he plays this magistrate figure, very understated. Jack, we were discussing earlier, very kind of samey, very whispery kind of toned down performance, which is fine and works. I mean, Rylance is a great actor. If anyone who's seen his uh, take on Jerusalem, which he did uh, written by Jez Busworth, uh, on, I think it was National Theatre a couple of years ago. I mean, he's utterly fantastic. And he can do bold and boisterous, but this character doesn't require that. The only issue is, it's such an understated performance combined with a character who's given no background or depth by the script results in a boring lead character, which, when considering we follow them for the majority of the runtime, doesn't really help. Uh, Robert Pattinson is an excellent actor. He's criminally underused here. Obviously, the script doesn't require his presence, so you know you can't really complain about a film for not including an actor you like particularly much, but he does put in a very kind of off the leash performance, a kind of antagonistic character, which we don't see much from him. And I think the reason I was so frustrated he wasn't in it more is because that's not a character we see from him regularly. And he plays a very good kind of foil to Mark Rylance's very understated, calming character and does push him to his limits, which aren't ever really met. Even Even when Rylance is experiencing this outrage, he's never particularly he never feels particularly invested and is invested as you'd like him to be so my main issue is basically the, the narrative is fairly undercooked I think the 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 source material I believe is you know a very well-renowned book and it's a period of time and a movement which is ripe for cinematic kind of portrayal but it's just not told in a very engaging way I and mean, when you combine that with the boring characters it doesn't really come off as a very entertaining cinematic experience which is bizarre because Guerra's other films are normally these very introspective uh, personal dramas that have a lot to say about colonialism and things like that and that does have a message here but it's a very basic one in comparison it's kind of essentially the message boils down to torture and colonialism is bad which is you know, an important message, but it's told basically straight up and there's no kind of depth or nuance to it, which is the main issue. I don't want to kind of shit on this film because I do think it has redemptive factors. As I said earlier, the performances, it's very visually arresting, not quite as I'd say as the other Rigueras works, but um, it does have, you know, a nice visual flavour to it and the cinematography is well done and things like that on a, on a purely visual level it's strong, but on an emotional level, it just strikes no chords whatsoever. Um, There's a strong kind of closing minute, I think, which you guys will probably elaborate on later, which is a nice kind of, I don't wanna say nice, it's a a very uncinematic, pessimistic look at this narrative and it does, you know, serve the remainder of this bleak, bleak film very well. But when it comes to emotional involvement or character depth, or overall narrative intrigue, I was severely kind of lacking any of that here, which is a shame.
0: I'll just go next because I, I don't really have much more else to say than, than what Rory said. I think, Rory, you, you've, you've ex- explained it uh, perfectly of how I feel. I think it's a film that's just so underwhelming and undernourished that it has all the pieces to be a really interesting feature. Performances, settings, story. It, it's all here to make a really interesting Conversation and it's just, it's just so hollow and opaque. It, it, it's quite frankly, throughout its running time, it, it, it's it's somewhat boring. Sergio Guerra like you said, is a director who makes often not um, films that that, that 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 do arrive with this sort of. I wouldn't say hype because I think that's probably a word that doesn't really go with that director a lot. But but there there are there are films that he releases that do get this distinguish, distinguished sort of achievement level where he makes uh, films about in, indigenous and, 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 and native uh, people who otherwise wouldn't get the camera turned on to them in a way. And I think in, in, in that respect, I think uh, Guerra's features are going to be always within the zeitgeist, especially in Brace of the Serpent, like you said, and I, I've heard really good things about his prime video series. However, in the same vein, it has come to light in the last few years that this man is a piece of shit. And I often do struggle, and maybe it's a bit too early to have this conversation before Hillary and Carson get their opinions in, so I do apologise. But I just think that just in order for me to explain my opinion, I just have to point out that the fact is that it's often very difficult to separate art from artists, and I have absolutely no emotional or entertaining connection with this director so as well these films don't mean anything to me i haven't seen a lot of them however it, it is absurdly striking for me to behold that, that a director who has got these levels accused of him since 2017 who in the last year or two has got even more accusations thrown at his feet as being allowed to work with the likes of johnny depp robert patterson and Matt rylance and it I find it that it's it's this question and I, it's a broader question is that this type of art often asks the viewer to decide whether or not it's worth watching because of the actions of their director but the question that never gets answered is the fact that why is it then acceptable for ryland's for Patterson and Depp all to to, to to sign on for this director and I know that Depp has is, is is friends or friendly with people who have who have been accused of certain crimes. I mean, Patterson has worked probably with a few people, don't get me wrong. But Rylance has been in this business enough to know that, especially on his career path, all three career paths as well, is that the, to associate yourself with someone like this is not the best cause of action. And I'm, I'm just tired of this rhetoric where it's that the viewer has got to decide. Like, I, I have to, I have to decide where if it's morally conscious of myself to, to watch this and give Gera the time of day, when in fact these the, the people with working with him never get that thrown at them. So I just want to throw that out there because for me I think what he's done, he should be acu- if he's accused of it, it should be he should have to deal with those, those those crimes. But to go out and make this film with this star power, it just doesn't. That's the, the part that doesn't rest quite easy with me. But regardless of that, to talk about the film, this is such a this is such a miserably hollow film. That from its beginning to its end, and I will, will again, like you say, Rory, that there are there's like twelve seconds at the end, which is generally compelling stuff, is the fact that the all the it's, the recipe is here to make something incredibly worthy of someone's time, and they've made fucking beans and bread. <laughs> it's <laughs> that, that it's just that is that is a horrific analogy, but it's so true. It's the fact that there's just nothing here. It's just there's no substance whatsoever. It's a film about colonialists, which I believe, I, I believe it's North Africa. I'm not sure. Um, the setting, the language would, would infer that. I'm not sure. Don't don't uh, don't use my words as gospel as much as I would like anyone to, to do so. It's an interesting conversation to have. What's happening now about colonialism, especially the UK, the French, etc., etc. You know, to, to, to talk about it. Uh, and this film has the opportunity to talk about a white man who is a magistrate over this this colonel. It doesn't doesn't want to talk about it whatsoever. It then brings Johnny Depp's character in, who literally is a chitty 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 bang bang villain, which was like a tongue twister. Do apologize there. It's just I I like what Johnny Depp does with his work. I do. I think he makes characters, and I I, I go to a film for a character, and I like his stuff in Black Mask. I like I, his pirate stuff. Okay. It's fine, but but I like it when he just... The makeup part of it has never really bothered me. If he's going to do Alice in Wonderland, that's when I sort of drop drop the line and feel like, right, that's for someone else to deal with, not me. Here, I felt like it was so on the nose with whether I liked or it was just, again, undernourished, and I'm just undecided on that. But then I get to Robert Patterson's character, and I'm so on the side of undernourished, it's actually almost patronising, it was like a 55 minutes I was waiting into this. I was like, where the fuck is, is our parts? Like, for a film that, that has such star quality, I was waiting for it. And the longer it went on, I was, I was sort of left thinking, ah, no, I see what's going on here. He's making me wait. The introduction is going to be so stellar. It's going to be so unnerving. Because for the course of the film, there are those quite horrible things that happen and we, we witness and we hear, and we see. And I was just thinking that if, if Depp is and he's obviously the character is horrible. If, if Patterson is going to be something that arrives after that, he has to be horrific. He has to be this evil. And that's maybe when we'll talk about the colonialism. But no, we get Patterson. He's just a lackey. He's in the film. He does nothing. And then we have Ben Miller in the film, who does nothing. And it's just sort of this recurring cycle of Mark Rollins is in the film. He does nothing. And then before long, we get this sort of second act that's so elongated. We get a third act that's so condensed. And then we, 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 we witness this impending attack on the on the on the colonial, I don't know, colonists, how, how you would say it, which ironically enough, is actually set by them in precedent for their actions and was never actually going to happen anywhere, um, which is an interesting thing to, to to sort of discuss. But again, the film doesn't do so. And then you have this, you have this sort of, this is the one thing that, and I, and I, I don't want to touch on it too much. I know we've got Hillary and Carson to go next, so I do apologise again. But The one thing at the end where I think it almost saves the film, and I can't believe I'm saying that, because I think this film is not terrible, it's just generally empty, is the fact that even though the, the, what happens in the film, that essentially the bad people, and I quote-unquote the bad people leave, and the colony is back in the hands of the magistrate um, in this sort of new ideal, quote-unquote, is that in the background... It, it is, the, 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 the title doesn't have to be said out loud. It's it shown on screen. It's Waiting for the Barbarians. Now, when you see that in the background, and, and you, you know this, like I said, there's a pessimistic, cynical nature of, no, it's not over. It then gives newfound thought into what is the title, Waiting for Barbarians. At the end of the film, it leads you to think that those people who are natives in themselves are the barbarians. But essentially, it's not. Waiting for barbarians is waiting for for whoever's going to cause distress to this whole place. And you could argue that to begin with, it's the magistrates, it's the colonists. Or it's you know, that 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 is one redeeming feature of it's that the film doesn't outright say who these barbarians are and who it's positioned to be against, which was again a one really compelling nature. But it was a, it was the fact that it didn't leave Mark Rylance's magistrate as the hero because he most certainly isn't. He is a part of the colony, regardless of his, of his beliefs of helping these people and treating them with respect. He's still in charge of a colony, And again, that's me making more of it than what the film probably wants to entail. But that is such a thin line, a thin silver line, between what I thought was near enough compelling, and I, I say that with the utmost <laughs> and limited amount of respect on the fact that that director could implement that regardless of seeing this film in, as a whole, and it having, having zero nuance or zero um, uh, comment to make about it all. It's just one of those films where it's not even worthy of just watching to see or what might w- withhold. Again, I think there'll be purists out there who'll probably want to see every Johnny Depp film, every one, every Robert Pattinson film. And, and I can just tell you now, you need to sort of just avoid this one because nothing happens in it eventful or interesting or engaging or uncompelling whatsoever
1: jack i feel like you just talked about this film more than like i would have paid money saying that someone cannot talk about this film as long as you just did no offense to you um and also just you know going off a point you made you talk about the actors in this film uh pairing up with this director you also have timothy chalamet and ellie fanning and selena gomez working with woody allen it makes no sense but here we are people just do shit and they don't think about like oh maybe pairing up with the rapist is a bad idea just you know apparently that's 40 chess for some people Uh, This film surprised me at first with the production quality and visual design and costume design. As Rory said, it looks fantastic. The cinematography is pretty solid. But yeah, it's just, it's empty. There's nothing here that like is captivating until the very end, even the performances, which like sure they have good intentions, Um, And, like, they're interesting, I I guess, enough, but, like, there's nothing in the script to make them compelling or interesting to where it's going to suck you into the film. These are the films I genuinely, like, I like, I love recording the podcast and I love discussion. I don't think I've had a single discussion on the podcast I, like, don't, I have not enjoyed. But these are the films where it's just, like, ugh. There's, like, it's so uncompelling in such a, a casual way where it's not even like there's a lot here to rant about it's just kind of casually bad and unmotivating to talk about to where like these are the discussions i generally think are like the hardest to get through i would 100 percent rather wat- talk about pr- you know project power and rant about everything shitty in that film rather than a film like this which is just like casually just boring and empty and you know not necessarily offensive in a lot of ways other you know than the director but it's just kind of there and it's very boring. Very, very boring. This
3: is gonna be interesting because I think I might throw a whole monkey wrench into this situation. I did not want to see this film. I didn't. I, when, uh, I know there were some changes near the with uh, kind of shuffling around what we were gonna review and I think Waiting for, the Bar- Bar- Waiting for the Barbarians was a film that was kind of thrown near the end and I was like, what is that? I can't remember what that is. And then I looked up and I was like, oh oh my God, I have to watch this. I was not looking forward to it at all. I expected it to be miserable and I didn't watch it until last night, really, really late, like maybe from like midnight till two in the morning because I was out doing other things. And it turned out to be a different experience than I thought it was going to be. And I definitely had to look into it a little bit more after I watched it, kind of tracking back the title of the film. Well, first of all, it's based on a book and the book is based on a poem. And the poem is about waiting for the barbarians literally about a colony outpost where they think barbarians are going to close in. And then the book that this story is based on. And the thing that's interesting particularly about the book is that it doesn't name any of the characters and it doesn't really name the setting. We have a faint idea of who the barbarians may be located, that it's somewhere like um, maybe West Asia or something. I'm not really good at geography. So if any geography mavens are lacking at me right now. I understand. But it doesn't say whether the colony is British or American or French. It doesn't really quite go into that, but it seems that a conscious decision was made to make the colonizers British. And personally for me, I thought like, oh, this is just miserable to watch because it's been covered before that British colonialism is, can be incredibly brutal, but this is a fictional story. Um, It's not necessarily based on anything. And th- here's the thing like that might make you guys scratch your heads is that I was not looking forward to this, but I ended up being way more engaged than I thought I was going to be. I was watching this and I actually was paying attention the whole time. Didn't really feel anything like I can't get through this. When is this going to end? I think I did pause near the end because like how much more is going to happen to this dude? It can't get any worse than this, but it does. But what I ended up understanding the more the story go along, went along is that it's a parable of how people are punished for doing the right thing. You keep seeing this guy who's continuously doing the right thing, but he's part of a system that is, shouldn't be there in the first place. And um, there was one scene near the end that particularly stood out where he's getting shaved by the um, one of his former employees who kind of takes him in after he's so you know degraded and kind of abandoned by his community and she tells him that the girl he was taking care of that he made her incredibly unhappy and we don't see any evidence of that and it's not really discussed in the film but it does kind of show how even we as an audience don't fully understand these people who are being colonized or what exactly they want or what their motivations are and the ending for me i talked about this a little bit before we recorded was that i think it was a fulfillment of the character that he shows to depp and pattinson where he says you know it's war it's character carbon if he's it's war or vengeance and then he flips it over and he says or it's justice i think we're seeing justice happening in the last shot of the film and we don't need to see what happens it's heavily implied and what's sad about it is that it needs to happen even though it deviates from history i don't think i've ever heard of colonists being completely taken down in many situations after destroying an area and torturing people, like the way it's depicted in this film. So it was kind of a release and you kind of know that at least with him, it's kind of implied that he knows that that's going to happen and that he's probably going to be killed. And he's at peace with that after everything that's happened. Now getting into the production aspect of it, personally, I didn't know until 10 minutes ago that there was a, sexual abuse misconduct or rape allegations against the director it is interesting that the film was has been somewhat buried not only be maybe because it's just not very good i wouldn't say this is a compelling film i got more out of it than i thought i was going to but it might be because of allegations against the director and particularly johnny depp he's still kind of a controversial figure that it might be buried more than we thought i do know that rylance joined the production in 2016 before these allegations came out but he could have dropped out I mean, that is kind of, there is a lot of question, questionability about people continuing to align themselves with people who um, are abusive, maybe with men, not so much with women always floors me a little bit more or people who have kids who work with people in the industry who victimize children, like always blows my mind. That's not the case here. But most of what I carried out of it was not his direction or the story or the writing. I think it was just Rylance. He's, I mean, he's an amazing actor. He has decades of stage experience and he's not a household name. He doesn't do films very often. I've been a fan of his since Intimacy, which came out a long time ago. It was a very controversial film. There was unsimulated sex in it. People like went crazy, but it showed me how far this guy could go in order to give a performance and the performance is good, not being exploitive or anything. And he's a shapeshifter; He can play all sorts of different characters and change his body language and his voice and his bearing and become someone else. So I don't think this film was incredibly demanding of him, but he does give like, um, a very subtle and complicated performance. I think particularly the scenes with the girl are very hard to play without coming across. Like he's sexually exploiting her or lusting after her, which is how it's written in the book is like this relationship is completely ambiguous you don't know whether it's sexual you don't know what he wants from her you don't know anything and that's a really thin line and for some reason you I mean I shouldn't say for some reason he's one of those actors who was able to walk that line very well so I enjoyed his performance I mean I wouldn't want to see it again and Depp I just don't I don't know what happened to Johnny Depp I really don't Um, I haven't enjoyed a performance of his for over 10 years now. And in this particular film, I felt like I would not only seen this character before in general, but I'd seen him play this character before as well. That was a repeat of what he had done. Like the flat tones, holding really still, looking hollow, um, the British accent. He's pretty much, um, it's all affectations. And I do wonder if it's because he's trying to go the Marlon Brando route route, where like he just shows up now. And... um, is kind of just phoning it in a little bit. I wonder if he's kind of going the Marlon Brando route and just showing up. Like, he, maybe even him wearing the sunglasses reminded me of Marlon Brando on the Island of Dr. Moreau. Like, just kind of sitting there, and it's like, oh, I'm evil, and, like, I torture people, and I just, like, stand there. He was just so not interesting. He seemed like a real dead weight in this film. And it's such a contrast to how he used to be. Recently, I saw his film that he directed that everyone hated called the brave which is not a success but it reminded me of how death used to bring warmth and dimension and something interesting to his roles even if it doesn't succeed and it seems to me like especially in this film and other films i've seen of his that are recent like he isn't enjoying what he does and i can feel it i can feel it in my body and i seem like you're just there you're not you're coasting you're using tricks that you've learned before. You might be wearing makeup or something like that, but you're not, you're not really bringing anything to the film. And then I guess kind of to wrap things up, it was interesting that Robert Pattinson was in this. It's the most brutal character I've ever seen him play. That was kind of uncomfortable for me to watch. I've seen him play morally ambiguous or violent characters before, but he was just there to be a monster pretty much. I usually do respect his choices. I have no idea why he associated himself with this director at all. But I also know because of his personality that he does have a tendency to connect himself to films that he believes in, even if he isn't in them very much. Like he's done that with movies like Damsel or The Childhood of a Leader, where it's like people will go to see him and he's not in it. Or he like yeets out, like in Damsel, it's like he's not in it the whole film so that could have been the case where he's like oh i'll associate myself with this film and it's only like three days or something so we'll see i'm oh, sorry i'm kind of going off topic here but that might be explained his involvement but i don't think he brought very much to it. he did a good job but his character wasn't very integral to the story really it could have just they could have cast anybody really it didn't matter so anyway wrapping this all this up, those kind of my thoughts on it. It's like the performances, mixed bag, the story more than I thought it was going to be. But overall, I don't know, it's not something that I would recommend to people.
0: Just taking away from a few of Hillary po- Hillary's points there, um, it's also a film, Very even regardless of what I've said about it, it's a film that I didn't stop watching, I didn't pause once. And I'm not sure it's, if it's between the fact that I just was waiting for something to happen, or it was that cinematography, it, it, it was that production design, it was the costumes, it was how Ryland sort of does subtlety and how he sort of ingrains his audience into being on his side just with how mellow and how how sort of impassioned he is with his characters. I'm sort of flip-flopping between the two, but it's interesting to talk about depth as well as, as as being as as coasting, because I don't I don't know if you could argue against that, Hilario. I think I think you're quite right. With his body of work regarding of his life in the last few years, it's quite clear that they're beginning to blur within mood. Now, understandably, we've I've seen this in the past with likes of Val Kilmer and and stuff like that, where it is difficult to separate art from 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 real life on that level of magnitude of star. But but regardless, even then, I think he gets away with it here just because the character would entail that to be this very mellow and understated character. I think if this film had him with a monologue of hatred or with, with, a, with emotional intensity, I think we would have seen whether or not he was capable of doing that at this standard. So I think the film somewhat hides his issues regarding of character and, and if he's committed to the project... Um, so I think Johnny Depp's a very very lucky to, regarding that screenplay, that he's, that he's not central in it. Patterson, on the other hand, is an interesting one because he's just come out in the last two days and said that you know, independent films now he's going to have to take a step back out of and go down the uh, blockbuster avenue with Tenet and, and with, uh, uh, with the Batman purely because he sees that nobody's seeing that work anymore and he doesn't know what type of career that would entail. Now... Regardless between the blockbuster, independent cinema conversation, I think that man is very, very lucky to have the career he has now with independent cinema. He wouldn't be Batman without good time, and I, and I think without the likes of David Cronenberg at, at his side, or the the, the likes of you know Cosmopolis and 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 stuff like that, I, I feel that Patterson has done all the right things. But as of late, he's making a few choice decisions and choice words to go back against the careers had. There's a lot of people who make films like the Twilight series who, who don't come out of it to a degree mentally and literally, whereas mentally they succumb to the issues of fan service and, and, and fans in general. I think Miley Cyrus has struggled with that a lot um, with uh, Hannah Montana and I think a lot of them just don't come out of it very well you look at team teen, at teen stars they just go off the rails and i think patterson is one of the very few and thankfully him and stewart have come out being gifted a few roles here and there and then gone in the independent market and i think stewart is cementing herself as one of the best actresses working today i mean she's the only american to get the caesar that doesn't happen every day so and, and i think her work in seaberg is it's really good i, I think I think she's making some really incredible work. Charlie's Angels, not so much, but I think it's interesting that these two actors now, after 10 years or 12 years, are now steady to get back into the saddle of going that little bit further in the studio realm, which is interesting that it's taken 10 years for these two talents to feel more confident. I mean, what does that tell you about the studio system and fan service? I mean, we're between the lines, but just getting back on Patterson, um, it's films like this, but regardless of how long he's in it, he should be, he should showcase a really powerful performance in the fact that, you know, you, and this is a horrible comparison to make, but, you know, Viola Davis in Doubt, she's in that film, what, three minutes? and I, I, Didn't she get an Academy Award nomination? It can be done. Like, I, if, if you're good at your talent and you can make the character what you can, and this is me but it might be speak out my ass but I think that I think having five minutes on screen is better than having an hour and 45 because you can put that five minutes and you can give you everything you've got and I think uh, you might be on the same path as me with this Hillary, I think he is really uncomfortable to watch on screen and I think he, he's putting forward a performance that isn't there on the script for him as well. So I think that's all the more power to him. And I think it is the screenplay and it's the direction of where this film goes that doesn't really allow him to sort of engulf the audience a little bit further to see how despicable that character truly is. And I think the same, again, is said for Depp. The one thing that the film is so conscious of, of conveying is that Mark Ryland's character is a Christ character. And once you see it, it's very difficult to unsee. You know, the 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 point of power he has a following he takes them out into the desert he comes back he tries to do a good deed he is then um you know relatively put put uh well he's relatively stripped of all command he's put into the wilderness to travel almost like a moses sorry I, I, not not a christ character but along those religious sort of iconographies where he's sort of almost like a moses um, and then he comes back he, he shaves his, his beard becomes the man he was, and then he then he waits for the inevitable uh, judgment of of his of his uh, ideals. So there's definitely layers here, and and again, I'm not not I'm not going to go on forever because I feel like again I'm I'm sort of taking up a lot of time here. But it's a film that I really want to like in the fact that it's got all the pieces here um, to be a really interesting character piece. And it just the more I think about it, the more it just fails on everything, and it's so disheartening to see this talent put forward because you know. It's very rare now where we'll get such a seismic cast put together in a film that has all opportunities to to be a really good little character piece. It's very rare we get to see that now, especially with this kind of, uh, this caliber of of, of actor and actress. Um, And here, it's just one of those films where it just doesn't come together at at all. And I I would really struggle to find anyone who would rate this in any way masterpiece. Um, in fact, I think that might be some reading uh, tonight on Letterboxd to find anyone who gives us five stars, because I, I would just try to find anything that's above a three here. Is here. Really, well, I, I would struggle, let's just say that. But, um, but yeah, again, uh, Patterson's made his bread. I think he's going back for the Batman. Rylance, again, like we said, he's, he's in and out of it all the time. Depth's the interesting one. And I think you're right, Hilary. I think I think he's coasting here, but I think he gets away with it because of the character. What he does next after this might maybe be the, the beginning or the end for him uh, as, as a performer of his caliber. We'll just have to see. So, moving from waiting for the barbarians to waiting for a, a horde of zombies, uh, let's move transition next to Peninsula. <laughs> You get the truck, come back with the money. That's two point five million dollars per head. If you come back
1: alive, she <laughs> <laughs> doesn't <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: A soldier and his team battle hordes of post-apocalyptic zombies in the wastelands of the Korean Peninsula. So I'll take this one this week. which we should have reviewed it for the site. Let's just start by uh, by saying this: When I first watched Train to Busan, the first thing I, I noticed, what well, the first thing I, I, I sort of took notice from wasn't the fact that it was that there was this. Really interesting take of how to sort of subvert expectations of a zombie film, especially in a foreign country, which generally always frightens me more than seeing it homegrown. Which I don't know why, because ultimately watching Twenty Eight Days Later should generally frighten me to death. But seeing it in a different country, of a different with, with a different context, with a with a different tongue, generally sends shivers down my spine. So. Foreign uh, zombie films are always very, very interesting to me. But the thing about Train to Busan is the fact that how restrained it was and its conviction of how well done it was shot. To, to, to say that, it, I wouldn't say it's a subtle film, don't get me wrong, but the fact of how it's just very slow, it's a wonderful character build and how it goes into all these sort of separate arcs by bringing these people together. Five or six characters at least, but they've all got individual uniqueness and to get a really hard-hitting, punching ending that we did. To watch Peninsula, I think is, and I'm going to be quite bold, is somewhat of an insult to that film. Now, the first thing I I, I sort of thought to myself, on a a glancing um, uh, thought, was that these must be two very different directors doing this. Because I know that, I believe the name, and I just want to get it correct, which is Yon Sang-ho. He directed Train to Busan, and then he directed Soul Station, which is the animated prequel. To Train to Busan, which is, it's a film very much like a melding of the two together where you have this story and then you have this gut-punching ending, but it's done in a way where it's like a subverted tale where Soul's destroying itself and then this woman, or I think this young girl's trying to get back to her house and in the end, you think that this person in her flat's this zombie trying to get her and it's actually, I believe it's her father who's drunk and then, then rapes her. And it's one of those things where you're watching a film, you think you're gonna to get to the ending of it and then it just, it generally de- destroys you. And Train to, dus- to Busan is a very similar film in where I don't think it sort of subverts expectation narratively, but I think it's conviction of how it executes set pieces, especially with the light, which is a small, very on the nose sort of element to, to, to craft within this lore mythology of, of, of quote unquote zombies. Just a brilliant idea of, of, of doing that. Peninsula is is very much the antithesis of what Train de Busan stands for so watching it and finishing it I was generally quite shocked to find out that this was directed by the same person and all in all throughout the film I was often thinking well this is just the Mad Max Fury Road to to, to, to the Mad Max like Train de Busan's Mad Max, Peninsula's Fury Road. Before long however it's quite clear that it's not Fury Road standard it's and I'm not trying to compare them to standards here let me just sort of Take that back. But this is Mad Max Thunderdome meets Fast and Furious. Now, for me, on paper, while that sounds remotely interesting, the actual context of the film is so boring and so unbelievably dull of how it wants to explore these themes of, of a career divided, of the people left behind. There's such a wonderful, genuinely touching, poignant story to have there about the people who were left behind, who could not go, and find um, the, the immigration to China or to Japan and were left to rot because the country left them to to be in this place and instead it goes down the road of, of doing this I get like I said Mad Max Thunderdome-esque prison thing which is interesting but it should only be a sort of slimline texture to the overall feature and in fact it's actually a hearty very very significant plot point and to me I would just sort of before long, especially with the Fast and Furious-inspired car chasers, which are so poorly done, it looks like PlayStation 3. It generally does look like Need for Speed at times. It's quite clear that this has gone more the route of taking a character piece and then creating um, a sort of a franchise-esque set piece. And again, this is, this is not, how, in my opinion, how you do a sequel. To do a sequel, you take what worked out the first film and elevate it, but remain with character all the time. This goes for the bigger, the louder, and more expansive, explosive uh, nature. And unfortunately, this falls so flat on its ass. it's actually quite unbelievable. The fact that it does try to do this second-guessing finale where about four people in the space of six minutes sacrifice themselves, I thought was the most emotionally barren a um, um, um twisted aspect of film could to sort of manipulate the audience into finally trying to care it makes absolutely no sense there's there's coincidence in film, and then there's peninsula who puts and who pits sorrow characters that meet together in the most unremarkable and coincidental quote unquote circumstances ever now understandable if you want to get a film to, to go from A to b, you have to have coincidence. Again, I, I get it. You, you've got to have that sort of, right, I understand it. For the plot to move on, we have to make this happen. However, there's so many directions this film could have gone down is that when it goes back to this, its prologue and this really strange circumstance and never touches upon it, by, but, but then literally does touch upon it in the same breath, I, just, I found myself beyond belief the fact that why they would have made that narrative decision, because ultimately it undermines the prologue considerably. And then there's absolutely no redeeming quality of them coming back and ending this story. Again, we talk about characters. No one's really redeeming here whatsoever except for the family who we meet. And even then, they're very interesting. Yeah, but you don't know anything about them. And again, the themes, which Trinta Buson sort of made very clear, they're not here whatsoever. It's definitely John Wick meets Fast and Furious 95 meets Mad Max Thunderdome. And if this was its own little being, I could sort of get away with that and say, look, it's just a thrill ride. It's a, it's a, it's a, a really action packed Korean zombie film. But this is Peninsula. this is Train to Busan too, And the comparison for them together is so despondent and uncohesive. I, it's often the not tr- somewhat difficult to sort of put the ideal towards that these
1: were in any way the same in the same franchise. At least the film that only us have seen, we at least this is the film we disagree on quite a bit. Because I actually really appreciate, one of the things I most appreciate about the film is how distinct it is compared to the original Train to Busan. I was really worried with a sequel, an anticipated sequel, they would just try to go through the motions and have the same film again. I think setting it, changing from a claustrophobic environment like a train, just, I mean, thank God they're not on a train just in general, but that was a very claustrophobic movie. This is a film that takes place, like you said, much more out in the open. It takes place not just in the instant aftermath of the events to where everyone's just initially reacting to for survival. This is in a world with characters who have adapted to the situation. They've adapted in a similar way to Blade Runner 2049, and that's a very strange comparison, I know, but that's a film that took the world of Blade Runner and then expanded it and adapted the world that it presented in the original film, in this movie, they introduce the concepts in Train to Busan, and it's really rewarding seeing those concepts then get evolved and seeing people start to use them and figure them out just in general society. Um, I found that to be rewarding. Um, And I overall really like the movie because it feels, or I like the aspect of the film that feels really distinct from Train to Busan, where I think, I also just think it generally feels kind of the same in some ways, the CGI, you know, it doesn't look the best always um there's a lot of those similar elements that i feel like it does kind of carry the same identity the of train of usan just in a very different package my biggest issue though is the screenplay i think that there are some interesting bits i think especially there is a social commentary here about immigration that i found pretty rewarding um, and gave the film some depth but there's plenty of exposition dumps especially in the beginning there's one that is just so painfully obvious it's almost hard to sit through Um, And then like you said, the ending does start to fall apart. But for at least the first half of the film, I thought it felt unique. It wasn't necessarily the most technically impressive film and just fundamentally, the idea of having it take place in this open space and just fundamentally change what it's about, I think it automatically is a step down from Train to Busan because the claustrophobic environment and the clear goal of getting the train to Busan is just such a natural like backbone for the film to have and it's so naturally engaging. So I think fundamentally what this film is trying to be is a step down from the original, but still, I thought overall it held on as a decently, you know, exciting, decently entertaining film. But towards the end, definitely, it started to go downhill. But I think what I appreciate about the film—it sounds like—is what you dislike about the film is the fact that it tries to be so different and have such a core different identity to it. If that makes sense? No, I completely
0: agree with you. I think it is just the idea of what we sort of seek as what what balances, and I think it's an interesting one to have because I think. I think like i said you, I think you're you're fairly comfortable with with the, with the balance it finds with me. I think it's just a strays a little bit too far not not only contextually what made the first one work so good, but the fact that it's so it just it's like i said it's just a, such a dissident film from the first one I, I don't I don't mind if 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 you have two parts you have chalk and cheese that, that's fine, but I think that there has to be some connective tissue here and I, throughout I just found them it, it just wasn't there for me but i I must admit. We talked about it not wanting to do re-steps of the third one. Sorry, the first one. I don't know about yourself, Carson, but the, the, the prologue, per se, when they're on the boat... Now, in my mind, knowing full well that we analyse stuff like this all, all the time, that this, is, this is our jobs, I knew that that would only be a fleeting moment in the film. And within that moment and how hooked I was, I was so 50-50 of them not wanting to leave that environment because I felt like it was an authentic and organic way to sort of evolve into a sequel, keeping the claustrophobia of the new set of characters and just double up the ante on a larger scale. And when it finished, I was slightly glad, the epilogue, sorry, the prologue-wise, because I I, I wanted to see how this story could evolve. Now, on reflection, I, I cannot say how in the complete opposite I am in that camp. I really wish they would have stayed on that boat. I really, really wish they would have taken that emotion in the moment. And it was them traveling from, I believe, South Korea to what they believed was was Japan, and then they go or to China, then to Japan. I can't really remember, but I think that that would have been such an interesting story to have because time would have been on their uh, their hands, knowing that the the, the the boat was going to then go to a different area completely. Um, his family issues have, have gone or, or, or he's he's in a military um outpost, oh, sorry, got a military position. I just felt all the recipe was definitely there. Granted, is that intellectually um, you know, evolving for the director to to, to, to go back for? Not really. I can I can completely understand why you want want to elevate the material. My 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 just my issue is that it's just it's just so far from what made that first film so exceptionally good. And don't get me wrong, I don't think like I said before, I don't think people will look at Train to Busan and say, that is a defining horror film in the zeitgeist. I think it's just the fact that that film was so well executed and so well done that it works on merit alone. So, again, there's stuff I like in Peninsula. And I think, like I said, on its own entity, I think it works rather well. It's just the problem is is that it's always going to have that big brother in its shadow. And 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 I understand I'm not looking at and peninsula on itself so maybe i'll try to do that And if i focus on that enough i think there's way too much car action i think there's so much disbelief there it's unbelievable i think the the internal combustion of society within the the, the hunger games thunderdome s is a really interesting um sort of thing to look at how how society descends into itself and how instead of a hundred million dollars a tin of beans means more. I think that's such an interesting sort of entity to entertain. But I think the film is going is going for is, is just outreaching itself so so much here, and there's just so much going on. It forgets about what works and then goes into sort of the meandering aspects of it all. But I'm just try, I'm just trying to find that positives, Carson. Right, and to tell you the truth, the the thing that pisses me off the most is its actual ending. It's sort of jump scare, emotional torment, where you think something's gonna happen. And then for like six minutes, it just goes on and on and on and on. And then the, it actually does happen. And then it just cuts to black. And I was just thinking, I, I don't know. I think you've probably overstretched that. I think if you're gonna go for a Soprano-esque um, edit, I would have just cut to black in the midst of that panic and torment and just, and just put the audience in the shit. But for the first time within the film, where you can really feel that these zombies are these horror icons. Because in, that's another thing, in Train de Son, you felt that a bite was end all, be all, that when these characters were bitten, they were gone. Whereas here, it sort of mock, mocks that conventional twist on, well, it's not a conventional twist, it just mocks the convention of a horror um, iconographer and sort of dumbs it down to an idea of the humans are the villains here. Again, really interesting element that I was sort of really looking forward to do. But I just don't think that those villains per se were engaging enough to really be more powerful while watching the film than these monsters per se. But again, I I think just to sum up my thoughts, and I'll let you you finish as well, don't worry. Um, I'm just going to say, I think that the film itself is that there's a lot going on here and there's a lot of ambition. We talk about ambition and... And 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 uh, and stuff like that a lot. And I think this is a really ambitious film. And I think there's a lot here to take away from. I just think the film doesn't afford itself the time to really flesh out anything, and really sort of make a a sequel that goes that step forward. However, if people see this in its own entity, I, for example, if someone saw Peninsula first and like Train to Busan, I'd I'd love to know which one they would find you know better. You know, because I think I because I think Peninsula works on its own little merits. Just for me together, I just find them too much chalk and cheese in the fact that
1: one doesn't really belong with the other. So you actually took the words literally out of my mouth because I was gonna mention the fact that in this film, and I've heard this happens in The Walking Dead, it's like the main example where I hear it's happened. I haven't watched that show, so I can't confirm. But the villains, really, this has focused. This has switched focus from being a zombie thriller to being a human thriller set in a zombie world. And I think it, there's key reasons why it just doesn't work as effectively as it wants to. Like you mentioned, the villains are not that effective. Like naturally, there you should get some depth on like the human condition and blah blah blah. You know that story. The villains don't have that depth to them but also the audience we don't know and we don't care about the world we're in the characters we're in since this is a spinoff rather than a direct sequel necessarily we are being introduced to a very different world very different social dynamics very different characters so why we would get invested in like the social dynamics i think that's like a fundamental flaw in this film's logic um also i just think like there are times where it legitimately feels like this film forgets that it takes place in a zombie world and then they just throw zombies in when they're trying to really focus on the human drama. And I just think like, continually like you mentioned Train to Busan and a lot of people love that film. I love that film. I think you know that's a film a lot of people really respect. When you rewatch it it is just kind of a crappy horror film at times. Like that is the main point. It's a zombie horror. There is not that much depth. There's not, you know, these revolutionary characters. It's this zo- it's a solid zombie horror film. And I definitely think Peninsula bought into its own hype a little bit too much in some ways and thought that it was this, revol- not necessarily revolutionary, because it's not a revolutionary concept, but it thought it was like this legitimate like series of substance and that it needed to elevate itself in that way where I really don't think they needed to. Again, I'm overall positive on the film, much more, you know, compared to you at least, but um I do think this film definitely had some key issues within it and I found that it was biting off just a little bit more than it could chew at multiple times. Um, But when it is a zombie horror film, I think there's enough here to where like, if you enjoy Train to Busan, you're gonna enjoy those zombie moments here. Um, But it's just once you start expanding onto it. And like I said, the key fundamental differences with what the film is even as a horror movie is where the film is not necessarily at the bottom of the stairs, but it definitely is a step or two down from the original i also I think that we, we I think the film um we both mentioned this has a really
0: interesting take that it doesn't develop on immigration on a whole, and I think in a horror I know we spoke about this quite a few times on on the podcast as well, especially about spree, how you can subvert a horror film with social problems and you can you can meld them to, together. you know we see it, but with mental health a lot, but I think horror with immigration here. It could not come at a more poignant time within this world. And that because the chance is there to really have a discussion on that. And then throughout the film, there's this, this like offbeat grandfather dynamic where he's repeatedly telling the family that there's going to be a saviour coming to pick them up by a, by a certain woman. I can't remember her name. A Sergeant something or corporal captain this, but I can't remember. And how that then comes into a realisation was so off key and undermined the whole hierarchy and emotional sort of manipulation of government here and, and and the idea of that because you couldn't you don't have the money to get here you can't get there i felt that really undermined undermined and, and, and really sort of if anything contradicted the whole thing the thing was trying the film was trying to say secondly as well I think it's interesting to say about *Predators* being a crappy horror film because in the, in essence it, it, again it's it's not actually i think granted i, think, I don't think it, it, it's 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 a it's a really su- superior horror film in that regard i don't think it is horrifying at all but again here it's just not scary whatsoever it's just it, it's it's an action film and i think Again, I'm just I'm, I'm I'm just more dumbfounded to see how this turned out as it was because I just think there's that balance. I think it always comes back to balance between let's get something that that you know or let's get something that we can evolve, but we can also remain at, the, at its core something that everyone likes. And I think sequels always have this issue. You have you know the Deadpool two, you have the Last Jedi, you have Matrix Reloaded was one of the first films where a sequel would have come out. What came out and it just turned every single part of its mythology on its ass and said this is it and presents you a new whole host of, of ideas and ideology and half the audience will resent that and half the audience will be engulfed about that and it's an interesting dynamic to do as a writer or a director because ultimately it elevates the material that came before it but also stands that film within itself tall and I think The Last Jedi is probably the latest film to do that regardless of what you think it's undeniable to question that Ryan Johnson tried to elevate the material. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But at the end of the day, he still tried to elevate the material and make something unique. And with Peninsula, I just, I just don't find this unique whatsoever in the fact that if you, if you have it on paper, like we said, we, we, we did the opening for it. To, to me, that synopsis doesn't ring true whatsoever what the film's actually about. This is Ocean's Eleven set set in set in, in, a, in a dumb horror film and again that sounds so good it generally sounds really like a dead rising thing it sounds really funny but there's just the melding of genre doesn't work the tone isn't here the conscious sort of effort on 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 social um political things are not here it's just a film that was that for me there's there's so much missing Again, it just, just begs the question where this sort of franchise can go from here because I think it's I think it's important to know, and I'm glad you've picked up on it, is, um, and, I, and again, I've made the same mistake, is that I keep on calling this a sequel and it's not. I think you're right. It's a spin-off. And if you take that into consideration, it has positives in the fact that, yep, it's a new thing. Let's just take it as a new thing. But secondly, how can you introduce a spin-off to a whole host of new Game changes within a world that we've that been set up in the first thing, because the only thing that's sort of a direct relation between the two is the fact that the zombies have, a, have an issue with light. Aside from, aside from that, there's not really sort of an inclusion between these two coexisting at all. So again, I think it comes down to, in my opinion, if people come here for train to boost on two, I think they're going to be un- mistaken, and I think unfortunately I'm in that camp. However, if people just find this, and hopefully they will do, because I think it's a film that should be seen anyway, I think it's an interesting one to behold. Especially as sure a genre piece, it has something to say anywhere. Um, I think they'll probably have a different outcome. But uh, I think there was just word the other day that Yong Sang-ho is going to make a, a, third, uh, sorry, a fourth film, which is going to be a prequel towards this one, which is going to be, of course, animated. And I think that if it's set on that boat, which I hope it is, I'll be really, really, really inclined to watch it. Um, If we're back in 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 Seoul, I'm going to be slightly a bit more optimistic of what's going to happen. But I I have a sort of a feeling it's going to be after sort of day zero in um, the Korean Peninsula after uh, the uh, you know the segregation of both states. But that being said, I mean I don't know about you, Carson, but are you going to come back for round four at this point, or do you think this is probably enough is enough?
1: I mean, I enjoyed it. I'll come back, you know. I mean, like I said, it's, it's, it's hard for me to be like, I won't go see a film when I fucking go see Doolittle. So, like, yeah, I'll see it. Um, am I necessarily, like, anticipating it? Not really. I think it's, you know, could be good. I assume it'll be enjoyable enough. But am I assuming it's going to be anything revolutionary or really, like, mind-blowing? No. But, you know, that's... Yeah, film I, mean, that's- I mean,
0: just just to end on it, but we just want to talk about it a bit briefly, because I know you mentioned it, but I think it's an interesting point, is that, do you
1: think, in your opinion, do you think this is a film that got sort of fell into the trap of hype? I you think talk the about- film itself, production-wise, did. I don't know if the film... Because, I mean, also, I think it's wild that, like, not more people are talking about this, considering Train to Be was such a big hit. Um, like, this... The fact that, like, I know there's multiple people who don't even know this is coming out who are fans of the first film, which is just crazy, in my opinion. Um, I think you, like, undoubtedly, the film, like, tries to... Sca- like take the step up and like scale itself up which is a sign that it thinks it can because it has that hype so I think production wise yes it's definitely in the hype but as far as like in the social conversation not at all.
0: Yeah I mean I don't know about you but in the last few weeks months in in fact I've seen sort of a slight turn with the um, promotional advertising where it was labeled as Peninsula and now it is Train to Busan presents Peninsula now I don't know if that is because like you said that it has had a very quiet opening, both literally and by word of mouth. And if I'm right, I think Train to Busan was a film that that came out and was built on the internet with uh, with word of mouth. And within this COVID era that we're going through now, you would have thought that Peninsula would have come straight out onto a onto a network like Netflix, like a Shudder, which I think it is next April. Yeah. Which which for me is um. And that's a long that's a long way to go next April. I think if that's true, so it'll be
1: interesting to see what where, where this lands, and then we'll it'll probably have a second wind. I almost feel like that's going to be like the main one because right now like this is stuck in this really crappy opening like weekend where it's like well theaters are open somewhere some places it's not open until a couple weeks you know it's going to have to compete with Tenet in some markets you know like this is not an ideal time to come out in theaters if you really want to be a big hit and be part of the big conversation. So I almost feel like right now it's going to be like almost you could say like quote unquote like in limited release where it's just kind of there some people see it some people don't and then Shutter will be the big release. I think it's a huge mistake. Cause also just seeing the film, like yes, probably it would work best in the theater. Easily you can get the, you know, experience of I think on VOD. I think it's a pretty big miss, especially like imagine if this comes out, this huge anticipated film on Shudder. Shudder would have benefited hugely from something of this size, like already with films like Host, you know, and um, even like The Beach House to a point, like Shudder has had these films that kind of gain some traction because people are just naturally right now watching stuff at home. This could be a huge thing to get people subscri- subscriptions right now when they're stuck at home watching or wanting good horror then they could you know i think this could have been huge for the service but instead they're just kind of putting it out weirdly like in the in the theatrical market in a time when it's not really ideal to come out in the theatrical market and they're just kind of throwing it away in a weird sense, which I don't quite understand. Like every other film coming out right now, other than Tenet, like you look at the Broken Hearts Gallery or whatever that film is, and I've never so openly see a a studio just throw a film out there just to die. Just like, um, we're gonna fill screens, we don't care what it does, it's not gonna do good, it's not gonna, you know, we're just throwing it to die. And this is such a weird pick for a film to throw in this theatrical market, like, I don't understand it you know maybe there's some hidden logic there and yes in a lot of other countries I know they're doing a lot better than America where I'm from so you know maybe it makes more sense there but this just felt like the how you kill the film if they're fully intending for this to be like the major part of its release and then they're just going to drop it on Shudder casually but I have a sneaking suspicion that most people are going to view this film and it's going to come up most in conversation when it releases in Shudder next year unless they have like a major re-release in October or whatever which you know we'll Thing.
0: yeah i mean it's an interesting one because i think i was doing some research a couple of days ago and i think it's opening uh well it's allegedly it's opening weekend has been five hundred thousand dollars now i don't know about you but for me i i think that is probably what one seventeenth of a of a budget of, of its marketing that it, that it's got to reclaim back so it does really does it sorry it does really beg the question of why release this theatrically anyway i mean the only thing that sort of I'm inclined to think the reason why that's a result of is possibly awards recognition having to have a release window, but then again it's not a film that for me would shout
1: that. Maybe no, I don't know. The first one I wasn't nominated even like foreign film right like it didn't no, I don't any, think so, no, yeah no. it got very little traction so it's not like they're hoping this is going to be like oh the sequel is going to come back and get another nomination or something yeah because out of the two there's,
0: there's most definitely one that the first one is i think you could pull that case forward in, in in hindsight this regardless of its merits i don't think it's that caliber of film and i think it doesn't probably have the backing to to be to be within that ceremony however uh Domestically, it might be maybe it's that I don't know the rules, but again, it does question why, why have a cinematic window so quietly for a film that that, that is running a, a really big hype um surrounding it because of its brand alone? Don't get me wrong. And then Shudder are going to get a release um down the line. It does, it does, it does beg the question. It is a very strange one because, like you said, that there are there are studios throwing you know. Stuff out left, right, and centre. But even then, I think you've still got certain stars in those films that sort of maybe carry it a little bit on streaming. I mean, King of Staten Island is a prime example. You know, you still have Pete Davidson. You know, with Unhinged, if it, if it had gone to VOD, you would still have had um, Russell Crowe, The Way Back, Ben Affleck. With this, it's name brand alone. So you've got it. You've got to get this out there um, on VOD as quick as possible and i think it probably would make a killing the problem is is that calling it peninsula doesn't really get it that far does it i mean it has to be trained to do on presents it's the
1: which, birds of prey argument like birds of prey yeah. like had a horrible week because it's what the fuck is birds of prey the fantabulous emancipation emancipation of one harley quinn like you don't get the name recognition till the very end of the long title which most people don't even they just consider it birds of prey so it's just like yeah it's a bad name to be honest, I think you should be uh, commended on remembering that, to be honest.
0: It's a fair, fair play. But no, it, it's, an, it's, a tr- it's a tricky one because when someone says to me, Train of Busan presents Peninsula, it just reinforces that two train, two Busan meme on Letterboxd where it's like a Fast and Furious <laughs> ripoff. So I think it's, just got, it's got everything against it. I don't know. May, may, maybe I'm slightly too harsh on this, but I think...
1: Maybe they were scared that like, since this film is fundamentally different, and you mentioned that it's kind of a disappointing, like quote, unquote, it's not a sequel spin off to Train Beyond. Yeah. maybe they were worried that would get people's expectations too high and like, oh, and it's just such a different film that they want to. So that's like yeah. a double-edged sword. I mean, I, I yeah. No, I, th- I think
0: that is a perfect way to end it as well because it, it, it is, I think it's a broader sentiment as well with sequels. It's that you are doomed if, if, if you don't and you're doomed if you do. There's no way that you can make a sequel that is unanimously loved by the people who like the first one. There's still detractors of The Godfather Part Two because it deviates from, you know, having that internal family discussion. And it, it you know, it, it's seeing the rise of someone rather than you just watching it tear apart. And then, you know, with, with sequels anywhere, I think with a with Matrix, you've got, prime example is you have The Matrix works on its own and then you have a sequel that's telling you that it's not right, that something's not, that, that, that things have changed. You know, I can understand why people would say, well, no, fuck you, I'll, I'll reject that. But the whole point of why The Matrix works is not to get into that, I'll be here all day, but it's the whole point of rejecting reality and the the projection of what you put forward. So it works contextually as well within that film. The Last Jedi is an interesting one because that's probably this, again, not to repeat myself, but that's probably the same similar thing within a franchise where you have something that that quote unquote is very, Similar conventional wise to a, to a to a genre, which Busso, i think is even though I, I granted i don't think it's horror per se, and you have a sequel where ultimately it, it's going against expectation to a point where it's pushing a lot of boundaries and i think this isn't pushing boundaries within the merits of of of, um, of its of its genre no nowhere, but I think it's pushing the boundaries of expectation of of what came before it and maybe it's that i'll go i'll go back and i'll wait a year maybe i'll wait two years and then i'll i'll see the whole ideal of this this saga and maybe i'll go back to peninsula and i'll watch it on its own right and i think as its own entity i think i would really enjoy this because i do think it's got that charm it's got that little bit of charisma it's got a whole load of action um some of it ridiculous some of it well well done it's got some redeeming qualities with its characters it's got a very interesting sort of Analysis of, of um, the state of mankind. So maybe it's just that sort of issue with having to carry the excess weight of, is excess weight of expectation. So I think this is probably going to befall on people
1: who have issues separating the fact and I think I fall into that camp. You know what it is? I think The Last Jedi conversation is really striking because it kind of also highlights like a fundamental issue with this is the fact that with The Last Jedi and specifically how they try to recontextualize the Force and what that means, they're actually playing with something like there's something there that of substance that they're retextualizing that we know that we care about in this film they're not like yes they're retextualizing things but they don't have anything of that depth or level or intrigue to actually play with and retextualize so because of that it feels more empty than something like the last jedi i mean i you know speaking of someone who you know last jedi worked for at least if you hate that film and you think it's fucking disgusting you know you might not agree with that statement but like that film recontextualized in a way that was, this concept in a way that was engaging and really, you know, piqued my interest. This film tries to, but it just doesn't have that substance of what it's trying to recontextualize to where it does have that depth. To round
0: out Clappercast, we'd like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Hilary, let's start with you this week.
3: I have two. One is a short, and it's really strange. Uh, I came across a short called I've Been Afraid. It was made just a few months ago. And believe it or not, it was made by a professor of mine from film school. But it's a very strange short film. She's now the director, uh, Cecilia Condit, is now 73 years old. And uh, it's just basically this really short film about different stories from herself and other women she knows who are the same age, about them being afraid of men. But she also illustrates that with like abstract animation stuff that's very 2020, something that you would not see a 73 year old woman use. Um, emoticons and clip art and glitches and stuff like that. Something really contemporary, but it's coming from this woman in her 70s. And like, and she sings an auto tuned song about being afraid with all these images of prey and predator and all that sort of stuff. And it kind of blew my mind. Uh, it's really short, it's probably about I was gonna say five minutes and seven minutes. So I would say, check that out. I think it's on Vimeo. Um, as far as a feature, I would recommend See No Evil, a documentary about David Sorrenti, who was a controversial photographer or photographer in the 90s who was kind of pilloried for bringing about heroin chic. And uh, he died very young um, as a complication of health problems and possible drug use. I watched that. Tr- the, um, I watched that documentary and it just, totally immersed me immediately and i was really really into it And it's a very interesting time capsule of new york city in the mid to late 90s um which was a fleeting time it doesn't exist anymore so if people want to check that out that's what i'd recommend
0: rory your
2: recommendations this week uh there's just some very intellectual recommendations from hillary mine's not as much i'm going to recommend uh Dog soldiers directed by neil marshall which is um the next in my kind of line of werewolf films that I'm slowly getting through. Not in anticipation of the Ryan Gosling one, but just because I like them. So Dog Soldiers is from the early 2000s, 2002 I believe, and it's about a troop of, I think they might be special air service soldiers on combat training, who are in the highlands of Scotland doing a kind of training exercise when they run into a family of werewolves, and it becomes a kind of um, It's all shot in one house and it becomes a kind of, uh, I don't know, hold down the house, kill the intruders kind of film. I mean, like an Evil Dead kind of film, like an Evil Dead structure. And it's just, you know, it's nothing deep or anything, but it's Neil Marshall doing what he loves with, you know, gory monster movies and kind of just tearing it up in one of his earliest features. Um, So if you like Werewolves or Neil Marshall or the army, go and watch Dog Soldiers.
1: And Carson, your recommendation this week? So theaters are reopening most places. And I want to be really clear, if you don't want to go to the theater, don't go. If theaters were open near me, which they're not, I wouldn't be going to the theater right now. Um, But if you are going to the theater and you don't want to risk your life seeing a movie that you could see at home, Unhinged is open right now. This is a film i got, I was very lucky to get a screener link for, and it really surprised me. The setup is absolutely like childishly bad. It's about like a road rage incident, And then the guy uh, played by Russell Crowe goes on the attack, trying to make the woman, uh, the main character, feel pain and see what like true pain is about. But it is such an effective thriller. It is a just fun, action packed ride. Russell Crowe is giving a legitimately great performance here. He is so like, physical and just threatening in his performance um, this was one i expected just to be a really forgettable bland film but especially for what it seems like it's going to be due to its promotional material i really had a lot of fun with it and i think if you are going to the big screen this is one that would be fun to check out but again only if you feel safe well that is it for this week's episode of Clappercast. where can we find everyone on social media
2: rora uh, you can find me on Letterboxed at rosa227.
0: Hilary? Uh,
3: you can find me on Letterboxed at laudanum33. At and you can also find uh, my blog, it's called The Holy Shrine on WordPress. It shouldn't be that hard to find.
1: I'm Carson? On Twitter, you can find all my bad takes, at bp underscore movie reviews, or on Letterboxd, Carson Tamar.
0: Speaking of bad takes, you can find my cynical takes, um, on Twitter and on Letterboxd for the username at Jack Luke Sharp. You can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at Clapper Ltd on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe, or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening. We're back next week to discuss all things cinema.